This is your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host reporting live from County Road 300 in Markey Township in the middle of God's Little Mitten. Well, here it is, August 19th, the year 2000, I think. Up here, you're never really too sure. The radio stations uh, stopped changing their playlist around 1960 to stop the rock and or roll from invading up here. And I'm on my annual family summer vacation, this time to go camping in the Porcupine Mountains in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, and then I drive down here through God's Mitten to Michigan's biggest inland lake, Houghton Lake, where my family was waiting, gathering in the same spot they've gathered every year since 1954. We, my lovely lady Laura and I, started off by driving north out of Chicago through Milwaukee, up through Fond du Lac, along Lake Oshkosh, and by dark last Saturday we were looking for a place to pitch our tent, but all we found was one of those RV campgrounds, complete with electric hookups so the family campers can plug in strings of Christmas lights to mark off their campsites, and enough power left over so they can run their TV. The campground had a goth feeling. Not goth like the cure, but more like the disease, the disease of a barbarian horde. I guess it was more of a Visigoth feeling. I heard one Yahoo say to another, I told the fellas at work uh, I was going camping, and they thought I was uh, talking like I was going camping in a tent, and I said, yeah, tent, right. This orgiastic family scene of gas-guzzling SUVs, clanking belching generators, and belching barbarians clanking beer cans on the ground, was not for us, so we drove on up to the Wisconsin border, ate a salty late-night dinner, salt being the most important spice of the Northwoods. We got a room at the Ironwood Motel. Ironwood's biggest business is apparently the unemployment office. Michigan works, and when it doesn't, you move to Ironwood. Ironwood, where they honor those who served in the military with the Vietnam vets' spaghetti feed, which sounds like a horrible force-feeding of veterans and camouflage. Ironwood, where mastectomy bra sales are advertised at the drugstore in foot-and-a-half high letters. Ironwood, where a man isn't a man until he's shot, killed, and gutted a buck. Where flowage sports are king. By the way, if you thought the term flowage sports is rife with pent-up sexual innuendo, the magazine racks up here are filled with titles that teem with sexual subliminals, like in fishermen or those that imply uh, the predator's odor by chance, like the musky hunter, or the one that suggests a perversion so bizarre that it would even make Troy McClure blush, catfish insider. We got to the Porcupine Mountains in the western UP and hiked up and down the rugged terrain that a hundred years ago lured rough men to a chance at riches and copper mining. The mines, they failed. The men, they froze. Many died in the dank, wet holes they dug. The land was raped, and no one profited. The mountains scarred forever, as if a hundred years from now, submersibles will give tourists a beautiful view of the sunken Russian submarine Kursk. Maybe then they'll have cigarettes. Don't get me wrong. The porcupines are beautiful, untouched by mining and logging rapists now for some 50-plus years. The land is unique, beautiful, and as near to pristine as it now can ever get. 
Though it appears by the cans strewn littered through these woods, Budweiser is still the king of beers. I found this now in two national forests a thousand miles away from each other, one in southern Illinois, the other one in upper peninsula of Michigan. Yet Bud cans litter both. Budweiser, the polluter's choice. Pollution has come to the UP, not just in the form of Bud cans, but in Antonagon, the family town, just east of the Porkies, on the shore of Lake Superior. Well, Antonagon stinks. It literally stinks. Was it clear if the smell that burns your throat was from the Smurfit Stone Corporation or Gitchigumi Oil? It was enough to make the folks eating at the Sip and Snack drop and puke. I guess the jobs created by heavy industry are more valuable to their families than the brain cells they destroy. Stopped in the Jubilee supermarket where all Antonagon's families shop, and the small-town feel really hit home. The cashier somber tone stammered, saying to the local in front of me, did you, did you hear that Leroy died? All the families up here know and care for each other, I thought, until the local replied, just who the hell is Leroy? With the Republican and Democratic infomercial conventions replacing sitcom reruns, I figured I'd get to hear the real people, the folks that represent the family values that Gore and Bush have pimped like two-bit whores. I get to uh, overhear these folks who family values mean so much to. I get to hear what's important to them. The working common folk, who these millionaire, silver spoon-sucking, oil magnet presidential candidates go begging to every four years. And you know what the working men and women at the Dreamland restaurant, some of the best pasties you can get along Highway 2, southern shore of the Upper Peninsula. The working men and women at the Dreamland restaurant were discussing while Joe Lieberman was shilling family values during his speech in Los Angeles. They were discussing comparative motorcycle roadkill. A, ju- a June bug? Sure, uh, that, uh, that hurts when you hit one. A hornet? Uh, got inside my helmet. Uh, you hear the buzzing, then the wham. Uh, your whole arm goes cold and you think it's one of them uh, damn killer bees. A seagull? Sure, they hit one of them. A hummingbird? I thought the world's biggest bug just hit me, but I looked back and it were a hummingbird, but uh, it weren't humming no more. On the 4th of July, I hit a rabbit. But Steve Miller, not the one of Abracadabra heroin fame, but some youper named uh, Steve Miller, he was the winner. Oh, Steve Miller, he hit a buck. Took the front wheel right into the gas tank and slammed that right into the engine. Old Steve was black and blue from head to toe, and what pissed him off the most was the deer got up before he did, so he didn't even get any fresh venison out of it. We crossed the Mackinac Bridge south. We got down to the family gathering at Houghton Lake late Wednesday night. Thursday morning, we got up, walked down to the beach, saw something horrible, something devastating. It was as if you'd gone home and a garbage dump replaced your family home. The dock, where we usually pitched our boats, was uh, moved from the uh, spot it stood my whole life to some 20 yards up shore. Sandy Beach was surrounded by 15-foot-tall piles of seaweed that blocked the sun and the children playing in the sand. It seems a family brought their family speedboat to the lake and dumped their bilge water from another lake into my Houghton Lake. 
bilge contained your Asian milfoil, which spread so fast, it's choked the lake. A few miles away, another lake has the same problem. There it got so bad, ducks can do a great impersonation of Jesus Christ at Galilee by literally walking on the water, now thick with choking weeds. To make matters worse, in a right neighborly fashion, at our beach, the neighbors put in a break wall, a cement wall along the shore, shore which now channels all of their weeds up onto our beach. This vacation has been filled with the consequences of American family values, starting with the families that pack their suburban sprawling lifestyle into their RVs to spoil the unblemished countryside, family values that made folks in Antonagon choose burning eyes and throats and pollution, and jobs over a clean environment to give to their children, family values of boaters who recklessly dump their waste in the lake, essentially killing it, choking it to death, the family values of those who have total disregard for their neighbors by encasing the natural shoreline in cement. Are these the family values that Bush and Cheney, Gore and Lieberman want to uphold? Or is it the family values of the 1950s brought us whites-only lunch counters, whites-only drinking fountains, whites-only bathrooms, and whites-only in the front of the bus? Or is it the family values to fight communism that gave us dictators like the executioner's row of Pinochet, Shav Iran, Fernando Marcos, and most recently Suharta? You know what family values both Bush and Gore support? Family values that have led to a million dead children in Iraq the sanctions that have only strengthened Saddam Hussein's stranglehold on power. Gore says, as president, he won't lift the sanctions. Bush says he'll only make the sanctions tougher. Their family values lead to continued support of military aid to the Colombian government, whose military executed six innocent children this week. Their family values have led to Bush's buddies at Enron Oil making Texas the number one U.S. environmental disaster, poisoning children in spring Texas, and Gore ignoring the phosphorus poisoning of the Everglades by the Sugar Baron Von Hool brothers, and both Bush and Gore have ignored the poisoning because the poisoners have deep pockets that empty into their candidates' wallets every year come election time. And both Bush and Gore's family values support Star Wars, now called National Missile Defense. This high-tech Maginot line ignores all of military history, such as data, lying to Americans, so funding can continue and has received legislative approval for absolutely no oversight of a project that costs $100 million per test. Apparently, their family values include lying, cheating, not believing that they belong to a family of nations. We all belong to this family of nations. Nations that are spooked. I think of the only country to ever use weapons of mass destruction. And we did it twice, folks. Having carte blanche to do it again without any fear of retaliation. Now that's right, neighborly. And both Bush and Gore, their family values have dragged us into a drug war that creates slave labor and slave labor in the form of prisoners for corporations like Microsoft, all at a cost of some $20 billion a year to taxpayers. But apparently, 
their family values means spending our children's inheritance and destroying the environment that we will leave for them. Now that's the real death tax. What family values are they talking about? I can't think of any family that gets that close. Maybe they're the Manson family values. No wonder people up here are more compelled to discuss roadkill than the presidential election. They probably feel closer to them. In the wake of this election, we'll feel like discarded carcasses, forgotten, dead, by the side of the American highway. Reporting live from a payphone by the side of the County Road 300, I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your Saturday morning hangover. This is hell. All right, Chris, I'm signing off. All right. He's all yours. Take care, and I'll see y'all next week. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Hey, Christian, how you doing this morning? Uh, I'm all right, man. It's like it's really it's like extra morning where I am. I know it's like eight o'clock there. Is yeah. It? Where are you? I'm in California. Uh, where in California? You live? You in San Francisco? Yeah. Whereabouts? In the Mission. Oh, really? Uh, I used to live up by uh, Buena Vista Park in, in Upper Haight. I lived there for like four months. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And when I saw that at uh, the corner of Haight Asbury, there is a super gap. I decided I wanted to leave. Yes. Oh, <laughs> torch. Though I liked Lower Hate. I thought that was about, that was like 1990. How long have you been living there? I've been living here on and off for 10 years. So what got you interested in writing a book, uh, writing Lockdown America, Police and Prisons in the Age of Crisis? What got you interested in doing that topic? I mean, it's not like uh, uh, something that's going to get, uh, you know, Daniel Steele type, uh, you know, uh, sales. You know what I mean? Yeah. What, what interested you in this? Well, it was just uh, living in San Francisco and uh, in the early 90s and just, Seeing, you know, lots of policing, lots of heavy-handed policing, and also, you know, lots of violence on the street, and and um, it was at one level there was like what seemed to be a kind of war between the youth in the neighborhood and the police going on, but at another level it was very kind of apolitical, and uh, in that, I mean, what 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 I saw was something that began to look kind of like a police state, except that unlike a classic police state, the people being rousted were not you know, political dissidents. And so I just um, looked for explanations and and I didn't often didn't find them. And so when I, there was some angle on the whole thing that I was looking into, I would start writing articles about it. So I, I was at, at that time becoming a journalist and I just started writing magazine articles and doing radio features. And then, you know, that ultimately culminated into a book. You know, uh, right at the starting of your book, I think it's actually in the introduction to it, you talk about an experience that you had that's kind of uh, reminiscent of a lot of the uh, racial profiling, the, uh, the profiling that police are doing here in Chicago. Why don't you tell people about what happened there? Yeah, well, it was it was pretty mild, but I mean, it was it was ironic in that I had sort of just gotten the contract to write the book, and I was walking to go get lunch with my girlfriend and these two undercover cops jumped out and threw us against the wall and, you know, grabbed my throat and were convinced I was trying to swallow bags of heroin and flipped out on us. But um, but it was mild compared to, you know, oh, they must have been citizen police encounters in America. Yeah, you know, I've had, <laughs> I've had two such encounters with uh, police in Chicago. One time I was wearing a long leather coat, and so they thought I had a shotgun underneath it, and I had, they thought I had robbed a liquor store and, with a shotgun and that now I was waiting at a bus stop for my getaway bus. <laughs> 
And uh, what was odd about that was all of the male cops were really, you know, macho and in my face. And then the female commander came, settled the whole situation down. And within a minute after she was there, the whole problem went away. And another time on uh, North Side, I was walking barefoot with a six-pack of beer, and they thought I just broke into a house. And I said, yeah, a lot of people break in barefoot into homes, you know. So uh, I want to, like, focus on the police part of the book and get to the prison part a little bit later. But the, the police part really fascinated me. Why don't you give me some examples of uh, the over-militarization or maybe or just even the militarization of the police force that seems to be going on in the United States right now? Okay. What, one of the main ways that the police are being militarized is through SWAT teams. One, through the proliferation of SWAT teams and then, two, through the impact of SWAT teams on regular cops. And a lot of this stuff, the whole, the whole story of the book really kind of begins in the late 60s. That's when you get kind of the birth of the ideas that eventually become zero-tolerance policing. That's when you get the birth of SWAT teams and um, all sorts of features that are now standard. But SWAT teams, the, the first round of development of SWAT teams was in the late 60s, and that's when big cities got their, their, their paramilitary or tactical units or SWAT teams. And then the, the, the development of that sort of plateaued until the 1980s war on drugs. And that's when you saw a whole other tier of municipalities get their SWAT teams. And so now there are 30,000 law enforcement agencies that have SWAT teams or special reaction teams of some sort. That, are, that is, you know, a paramilitary police unit, a unit that has military helmets, body armor, and machine guns. And just to illustrate this, even the town that I'm from in Vermont, this little town called Brattleboro, has a SWAT team. There's hardly any crime there. So, and, and one of the missions of every SWAT team is to train other police. And the, the SWAT teams themselves are often trained by the military or the FBI. And so they become transmission belts for new equipment to enter the, poli to, uh, the police forces and a whole new ethos of war, a whole rhetoric of, you know, and destroy. And the problem with that is that policing is not war. You know, policing is about keeping the peace. It's not about finding and destroying enemies. And once you start seeing policing as war, where you're out there to find and destroy enemies, you, you're inevitably going to treat the community as the problem. You know, one of the, uh, supposedly one of the problems that, uh, what, I guess supposedly isn't the right word, um, one of the problems that happened at the 1968 police riot here in Chicago during the Democratic National Convention, they said was because the police were not used to working as one unit of hundreds of people. They're used to working as one or two guys out on the street together. So it seemed like, it would seem like a SWAT team, a militarization of the police would be the antithesis of what police thinking is all about. So I don't understand why they would be so quick to militarize even like small police departments like you were saying in Vermont. Why, why were they so quick to jump on that bandwagon? Well, part of it is that the federal government is leading the way and offering just scads of money and gear to police departments to do this. And what happens often is you get a little, you know, nucleus, a little click in some police department, often of young officers who get you know, to be the SWAT team, and they get, to a certain extent, you know, addicted to the high of being the elite force, or as one sociologist put it, to become culturally intoxicated. And so the, uh, once that ball's rolling, you, you, even if you don't need a SWAT team, you often police departments find themselves with this, you know, group of guys who are just, like, so into, you know, training every other weekend and, you know, getting to play with Heckler and Koch MP5 
submachine guns that's kind of hard to dislodge the unit. And what will happen is that these SWAT teams, uh, having to show good use you know, every year, having to defend their budget, start going after more and more picayune crimes. So they start out traditionally as emergency response units that assemble when there's a hostage taking or something. And then increasingly, you find them working as a unit all the time together and and enforcing drug warrants. And then when there aren't enough drug warrants, they often go after simple bench warrants, which are, you know, warrants, arrest warrants for people who simply don't show up to court. Because so, you're not, not going to just sit around and be bored. Yeah, and, and you have to, you know, you have to maintain... Uh, the appearance of necessity to the police chief, to the city council, and all that. So that's that's part of it. And then, I mean, you know, getting back to the historical roots of it, another part of it was that, you know, in the 1960s, the U.S. was in, you know, political upheaval, and the police there there was, you know, a rise in um, political and apolitical violence in the society, and police were getting. Um, you know, sniped at and attacked, and, and they really, the, the police, the elite sort of police planners in the nation kind of correctly felt that there was, you know, a race and class war developing in the U.S. that resp- that required a military response. And so that's why you get Daryl Gates, you know, being one of the first people to set up SWAT teams. And so the original ethos is also that, you know, there there was such chaos and conflict that there really needed to be military intervention of a sort. But when the rebellion of the 60s has kind of uh, slowed down, I mean, you're in, by the 1970s, by the mid-70s, the rebellion of the 60s is pretty much dead. So why is this build-up, uh, this militarization of the police build-up, why is this continued? What, uh, what other things have caused this to continue? Well, the, what happens around the same time that the, the movements of the 60s demobilize and then the rioting ends is you have, you have sort of stasis for a couple of years, but then you have the arrival of Ronald Reagan, who completely transforms the U.S. economy in many ways, restructuring it so that there is a return of very serious poverty, particularly in cities. You know, you have deindustrialization, deregulation um, around investments, so a lot of money that could go towards productive industry goes into speculative real estate ventures and, and um stock market, and you have a whole transformation of American capitalism that leaves millions of people in poverty. And let's not forget that even though the economy is booming now, um, the unemployment figures don't really measure the, the, real, the real extent of the problem. Unemployment only measures people who are actively looking for work. And uh, there are the latest figures I heard read on poverty is that there are 37 million people in the U.S. who live below the poverty line. And the poverty line is itself, you know, an absurd little um, uh, um, barrier. I mean, that plenty of people above the poverty line are really quite poor. So that, that class of people, which had through the 30s and 60s been increasingly managed through welfare, job training, education, ameliorative, co-optive sorts of, you know, attempts to include people in the system, those programs are out the window with Reagan, but there still is a need to, you know, control the poor. And so increasingly you have segregation, policing, and state violence. We're speaking with Christian Parenti. Christian is the author of Lockdown America, Police and Prisons in the Age of Crisis on Verso Press. Christian, do you have a website or any suggestions on how people can get this book? Well, they can get it um, from Amazon.com or Verso has a website, which I think is Verso.com. 
uh, it sold out really quickly, the first printing, and there was a few typos in there, so I made them correct that. So there was a, a delay, but we just have the second printing is coming in this very week. So um, Amazon.com is probably the easiest way. Okay, now, um, what since, since the Reagan years, beginning in the Reagan years, what rights uh, that we are supposed to have, according to the Bill of Rights, what rights are being infringed upon since the crime bills of the 80s, uh, like starting with the crime bill of, like, 1984? Well, lots of, um, one of the main things was uh, the, the uh, um, good faith exception um, which is which allows police to use tainted evidence if they can show or tainted warrants you know if they can show that it wasn't intentional whereas before if your warrant was messed up that was it you know the, the case was thrown out right so that that law changed and that tr- that helped prosecutors and police tremendously to um, you know uh, put people away and there's been all, all sorts of most of that has been dealt with in case law as opposed to um, legislative law. But, you know, there's been a whole uh, restructuring of the um, Fourth Amendment protection against un- unreasonable search and seizure and all of that. But some of the things that have happened legislatively is the creation of mandatory minimums, as you know, most people know about. That's probably one of the most important changes. And the first mandatory minimum laws come in in 84, then there's another set in 86. What's and a, then, Wait, what's the minimum? Mandatory minimum of... Oh, man- mandatory minimum sentencing. It's, um, you know, that requiring that judges sentence drug offenders to a mandatory minimum as opposed to allowing judges to decide on an individual basis how much time a defendant should get if they are found guilty. You know, judges, uh, Andrew, too, uh, Andrew is uh, working on this, running the board for us this morning. Uh, Andrew, uh, judges all over the country have always... Uh, uh, the majority, I would say, Christian, if uh, you can disagree with me if you want, have always been against mandatory yeah. uh, sentencing because it kind of takes some of their power away. And a perfect example that you give in your book is from the Crime uh, Bill of 1986, which gives a five-year mandatory sentence for 100 grams of heroin, 500 grams of coke, or only five grams of crack. Right. And I think that's that's where you uh, that's not where you start uh, saying this in your book, but I think that's a perfect example of the inherent racism that seems to be happening within the uh, law and order or system. Classes. How is how is that that's racist? Or classes? Well, because think of the tiny amount of the cheapest, oh, okay. crappiest drug that you can get or sell, but you have to have twenty times that amount of powder. Yeah. So why don't you uh, elaborate about that a little bit more, uh, 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 Christian? Why do you think that this is a class or a and or a race war as, as far as sentencing is concerned, as far as the whole law and order structure is concerned? Yeah, well, I mean, you, you laid it out quite well there. I mean, the fact of the matter is that, you know, the African Americans are more likely to smoke crack than to snort powder cocaine, even though both drugs are pharmacologically the same thing. So when one of those drugs is punished at literally a hundred times the other, I mean that, and, and it happens to be the drug preferred by African Americans, that's you know inherently racist. And what you see is through the 80s, you know, American policing has always been racist. That um, may offend some people's sensibilities, but I think the numbers show it. But through the 80s and 90s, it gets more racist. So in 1980, African Americans make up you know roughly 12 percent of the population, and there are 23 percent of the people arrested for drugs by the 1990s, still African-Americans are 12% of the population, 
but they're up to 40% of the people arrested for drugs. And then at each stage in the process, from arrest, arraignment, um, you know, plea bargaining or trial to sentencing, you see racism kicking in and vetting out whites and coming down harder on people of color, so that now 70% of all people serving time on drug charges are black. And, uh, you know, it's, it's... When uh, an incredible, uh, very right-wing conservative, William Sapphire, said that he was against urine tests, I think this is another example of how uh, our rights are being infringed upon, Uh, when he said that... um, you know, urine tests are wrong because you're innocent until proven guilty. Right. Uh, there is no requirement that you have to testify against yourself, that it's an example of illegal searches. So why are urine tests not only still around within the federal government, but why are they so pervasive still? Why are they so pervasive still in uh, the private sector as well? I think, um, I think a lot of that just has to do with the snowball effect of the war on drugs rhetoric. And, um, not, I mean, not all. My my overall argument is that fundamentally, structurally, this is about you know race, race and class control. But that doesn't mean that every criminal, every piece of the criminal justice buildup is necessarily created by that logic. That can just be the overall impact of it. But what happens, I think, is that that there is a hysteria has gripped America around drugs and crime, and you have bureaucrats and politicians desperately, you know, wanting to have real issues, but they don't want to, like, you know, step on corporate toes and talk about many of the real issues that, that uh, might excite people such as health and safety and, um, you know, reigning in HMOs or whatever. So they have to find demons and crime and criminals is the perfect platform for that. And so then that rhetoric just can spin out of control and a sort of rhetorical inflation sets in so that you have, you know, now, like the Columbine um, impact, just the rhetorical impact of Columbine how hundreds, literally hundreds of schools in America have outlawed black trench coats, you know, because they, you might carry a shotgun under them. They've outlawed choker chains, whatever. I mean, there's no functional reason for that. That's just sort of uh, surplus repression, as Herbert Marcuse would have called it. That's just, you know, rhetorical and policy overkill. Herbert Marcuse of the Frankfurt School. Um, and uh, uh, these uh, <laughs> doing something like that is just an arbitrary thing in order to get more votes, is what you're uh, what you're saying. Am I right? In many cases, yeah. In many cases, I think what it's about is about politicians needing to tell compelling stories to anxious voters, and they can't tell people the story of class. They can't say, "Yeah, well, you should be anxious because you know corporate America is getting massive tax breaks." And, uh, you know, we're constantly, you know, the laws are changing to make it harder for you to unionize. Uh, you know, medical care in the U.S. is a disaster. Public education in many states has declined precipitously in the last 20 years. They can't speak about those things and get lots of money and win elections. But they can't tell people, hey, everything's great, you know, when in fact many of their constituencies are really suffering. So crime becomes the means to getting elected. But then eventually they have to deliver some policy along with that. And many of them, you know, like Orrin Hatch, who's been instrumental in, the, in many of these federal bills, you know, I mean, I, he, 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 I think, knows what's going on. And he is into controlling poor people, particularly black people. But there are plenty of other politicians who, you know, just talk the talk and walk the walk and vote yes on, on the latest draconian crime bill because that's, you know, that's the, uh, the overall momentum. You know, there's something that I'm afraid that's going to happen here in Chicago, and I I understand that it's happening, well, 
some of this has already started here in Chicago, and I understand that this is happening to a greater degree right now in uh, the Los Angeles area. Business improvement districts actually create private police forces that are like uh, vigilante forces that go around and clean up the streets uh, in accordance to what the retailers on those strips want. Is that, I, I don't think that that's an appropriate thing for the pri- private sector to be doing. I, is this something that's growing all over the United States? Have there been any <coughs> slowdowns in business improvement di- uh, districts uh, uh, hiring these security forces? Is this uh, something that's growing quickly? It's, um, I think it grew quite rapidly through the mid-90s, and I think it's still growing, but it's plateaued out. But, yeah, it's, you know, and New York, again, was one of the really high-profile models. The, the business improvement districts were a crucial component in, in Rudy Giuliani, the mayor of New York, in his, quote-unquote, retaking of the city, you know, along with creating zero-tolerance policing and, and putting thousands of new cops on the beat, he allowed for business improvement districts to be created. And in the, those are the cases that I write about mostly in the book is in New York, where what you found was these, quote-unquote, nonprofits were becoming little micro-governments in, you know, like a 20-block square region, these businesses would tax themselves and then use the money for street improvements and beautification, but also for security because, you know, as cities become theme parks and corporate headquarters and the real estate values in cities shoot through the roof, interestingly enough, you often have, you know, legions of homeless people uh, invading, quote-unquote, these same spaces. And so security is absolutely essential in making urban economics work. So the business improvement districts were hiring, as you said, private security guards. But very often they were hiring homeless people who would live in shelters and get paid a dollar a day, in this one case, because it was an internship, supposedly. And these, these homeless mercenaries would go around for a dollar a day and a place to stay in the shelter and kick other homeless people out of ATM vestibules and, and away from the, um, you know, the fronts of Tony or buildings. And um, what so- happened in New York, interestingly, was that the business improvement districts got so powerful that Rudolph Giuliani got sort of threatened by them and then kind of clipped their wings. But they're still absolutely essential to, quote-unquote, taming cities and maintaining order in cities, which really translates, in many cases, into just segregating poor and unsightly people, particularly people of color. And and it seems like a way to divide and conquer uh, the people who are the disenfranchised instead of them putting their energy towards possibly organizing to better themselves. Instead, they are being attacked by themselves in a weird way. And and also with uh, Rudolph Giuliani, he did this process of uh, uh, trying to enforce every small picayune uh, nuisance law. You call this the broken window effect. In other words, if there's a broken window in a neighborhood, then that will possibly lead to crime in the neighborhood. You don't have the broken window. You don't have the graffiti. You don't have the people drinking on stoops. This is something that's going on here in Chicago like crazy, too. Then uh, you'll have no crime in the area because there won't be the signs of crime. Yet these people who are moved off the streets, you mentioned the Badlands areas of cities where these people are being moved to. How are these areas different from pre-World War II ghettos or post-World War II public housing? How are these Badland areas different from that? Well, it depends. I mean, one, the main thing is that they're on the outside of the cities. There's been a whole kind of geographic restructuring of cities. You used to find poverty in the central cities, and big money has really returned to central cities in the last 20 years. You have high-rise offices, luxury hotels, and then around them, you know, increasingly gentrified play belts. So one main thing is that the poor are now just on the outside, but then there's also a lot of, um, 
you know, a kind of an over-concentration of, of uh, sort of state regulation in many of these places. That's where you have, you know, detox centers, sh- shelters, which are increasingly militarized in most cities where people have to work and, you know, have to check in at certain times and all that. And so there's, there's in some ways, the, these, these kind of outlying badlands are... Um, are more more heavily institutionalized and less, you know, just sort of organic communities than your traditional inner city neighborhood. And from these uh, uh, enforcing of nuisance laws, uh, for instance, you talk about Abner Luima in New York City, who was raped with a plunger after he was being he was uh, the misdemeanor that he, uh, you know, the offense that he had was double parking. And a man by the name of and I don't have the first name in front of me, Baez, who uh, ended up being shot and killed by police, and the offense for him was throwing a football in the street. So why is this? I mean, I I kind of understand the uh, you know, broken window idea. You take the graffiti off the street, the neighborhood looks nicer, maybe it's more ready for gentrification, maybe that's the whole goal. But do any of these enforcing of nuisance laws, does that end up in a lower crime rate? Has there been any direct link between those two things? Yeah, a lot of people on the left would totally deny the fact that zero tolerance policing has any impact on crime, but I think it does. Um, you know, repression works. I think actually, you know, shooting shoplifters would probably affect shoplifting too. But there are other questions that come in, of course, right? I mean, lowering crime rates cannot be the only variable. And if there's massive, you know, human rights abuses going on, then maybe there needs, we need to find another strategy. And the thing about zero tolerance, which is best exemplified in New York, where, you know, yeah, as you said, in the name of fighting violent crime, police are told to go after little infractions. And along with the Abner Luimas and Amadou Diallo's, people who are shot and raped by the cops, there's this lower level, an unseen level of continuous harassment. So now when you get arrested, arrested in New York, you no longer just get put in a paddy wagon and taken to the station. You get put in a paddy wagon and driven around for sometimes up to eight hours, you know, in handcuffs until the paddy wagon is full. And police have, you know, really gotten the green light to harass everyone they arrest, you know, to, to whatever extent they can legally. And so... There's a whole, you know, uh, other side to that iceberg. Those, those dramatic cases are just the tip. But um, the, uh, I mean, the other reason that there has been a, a precipitous decline in crime rates is that, one, the economy is booming. And so even if the economy is, you know, distorted and, and a lot of the jobs that have been created are, are you, know, you know, lousy, dangerous, ill-paid jobs, at least there are more jobs. And so that just you know absorbs people off the street who might otherwise be getting into trouble. There's also a smaller youth cohort in the society. That means there's just a smaller percentage of the overall population is between the ages of 30 and 18, and that always affects crime rates. And um, also, there's been, according to some sociologists and anthropologists, a real cultural shift among youth away from violence. And this doesn't really get talked about, and youth don't get enough credit for this. That you know. Since the gang truces of the early 90s, there's a new generation of youth coming up in cities who have seen, who saw the, the generation ab- above them in the late 80s, early 90s, ravaged by crack addiction, by the gun play around the crack market, by HIV, and by incarceration. And that youth are mellowing out and, <coughs> you know, changing their ways to some extent. So all of those factors work in as well to help explain why crime rate is going crime rates are going down, because crime rates are going down both in cities that have zero-tolerance policing and cities that haven't changed their policing style at all. 
And you even suggest that in Indianapolis, where they do have zero, zero tolerance, that there has been absolutely no change in the crime. If not, the crime has actually gone up since zero tolerance has been implemented in, in Indianapolis. That's right. And they've had a couple little riots there, you know, when people, you know, police have just been too rough with folks and pissed off the entire community. That just doesn't get a lot of press either. That's yeah. the uh, sad part about it. One more question for you before I have the question from hell for you. It's always the question that we have towards the end here. Uh, I'm, talking to, yeah, I'm talking to Christian Parenti, the author of Lockdown America, Police and Prisons in the Age of Crisis. You can get the book through Amazon.com. Uh, it's in a second printing now, so it might be a little bit of a wait. I don't think so, though. But It's also at 57th Street Books in Chicago. Uh, 57th Street Books down in Hyde Park in Chicago. Yeah, and, and on all other fine Yes, uh, Barbara's <laughs> or whatever. Anything that's not a gigantic corporate place. Um, and uh, you can also find it at verso.com. So I just want to ask you, uh, it's too bad they only have time for one uh, question about the prison system. Yeah, There's a lot of good stuff in there about prison gangs and the politics of rape. That's some, that's important stuff. But anyway, hey. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can go read it. You mentioned, exactly, it's a tease. Yeah. You mentioned I'm waiting a, for the movie. You mentioned a prison industrial complex in contrast to Eisenhower's or comparison even to Eisenhower's military industrial complex. Is our prison building policy and consequently our law and order policy being uh, driven or at least influenced by contractors like our Pentagon policies are and uh, these moneyed influences by corporations are uh, you know are affecting our elected officials? Is there that kind of, you know, campaign finance problems going on with uh prison contractors as well? There is, but nowhere near the extent of the military-industrial complex. And what I do in the book is I really kind of, you know, argue against trying to explain prisons the same way people have explained the military-industrial complex. You know, private prisons control about 10% of all prison beds. They, they, you know, grease the palms of politicians. But private prisons are also becoming very unpopular because they're liars and cheats and political liabilities. You know, lots of riots happening and escapes happening private prisons. So there's problems with that. Also, you know, prison labor, people often think, well, you know, incarceration is growing so that corporations can exploit prison labor. But the fact of the matter is there are only 2,500 prisoners working for private corporations. And corporations generally, you know, have plenty of cheap labor elsewhere and don't need to go into prison where, where they too are going to have to live under the regime of strip searches and constant lockdowns. So prison is just not a good place to do business. Um, so in many ways, the, the prison industrial complex looks like the military industrial complex, but you can't explain it the same way. There isn't the equivalent of some GE or Lockheed Martin that has like literally hijacked incarceration or criminal justice policy the way defense contractors have since World War II, you know, basically just hijacked defense spending. And so I think what you need to do is look more at the whole whole kind of political economic history of the last 30 years and look at the crisis in the 60s and how society changed politically and economically since then and the, the role of incarceration and segregation in state force in managing what is an increasingly unequal society. You know, uh, you might be interested in uh, finding this. If you go to the Chicago Tribune's website, there was an article this week about uh, Governor George Ryan, who is just a mess here in uh, the state. Um, He (laughs) just gave, uh, or he recently gave an $80 million prison contract to somebody who was a really close friend of his and, I believe, a campaign financer. So uh, you might want to check that out. But, Jeff, I believe you have a question for Christian. Oh, it's a dumb question. Do you know a guy named Nick Griffin? Yeah. See, is he a urban planner? Yeah. Yeah, I know Nick Griffin. He's my friend. 
Oh, well, Tell him Jeff Deutsch and said hi. All right. There you go. <laughs> All right, then. Was that the question? No, no, that was not, for God's sake. <laughs> that was sake, a question no. from heaven. Yes. This is the question from hell. Are you ready? I'm ready. Christian Parenti, author of Lockdown America, Police and Prisons in the Age of Crisis on Verso Press. You can check it out at verso.com or uh, order get it at your finest neighborhood bookstore. Um, so law-abiding Americans seem to be willing to give up their rights in order to have less crime because because cr- it's been demonized so bad because crime has you know it looks so horrible in r- relation to the other western industrialized countries our crime rate is still through the roof no matter what we seem to do no matter how many people we shoot and how many people we put in prison our crime rate still seems to go high so in the end isn't all of the horrible treatment that people get uh, who uh, cause misdemeanor crimes, all the horrible treatment that people get when they're in prison, isn't this what they deserve because they are breaking the law? And law-abiding Americans shouldn't have to worry about any of this as long as they're not breaking the law. Well, what, that all assumes that, that law-abiding Americans never get mistaken for criminals and thrown in prison, which, you know, actually happens quite often, you know, as the Hurricane Carter movie as illustrated in a popular way once again. Um, there's also, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter that, I mean, I don't think Americans approve of, Americans approve of punishment, but I don't think they understand, by and large, what really goes on in prison. And I don't think they approve of stuff such as, take the case of John William King, the white supremacist who dragged John Byrd to death in Texas. He was a small-town guy who broke into some building and was sentenced to prison and, according to his lawyers, was set up and raped, put in one of the most violent prisons in Texas, and he was not a violent offender, and came out, surprise, surprise, after, you know, being raped and then being plunged into a race war, came out an insane white supremacist and returned to the streets and committed one of the worst crimes in the world. I mean, you know, one of the worst hate crimes we've seen in, in years. And I think that that kind of dynamic goes on all the time, that prison helps undermine public safety by damaging young people. So, you know, so I don't think prison enhances public safety, and I don't think that, that most Americans really think that you should actually be gang-raped for burglary um, or, you know, all those sorts of things, or be forced to fight in gladiator fights as is the case in the California Youth Authority and the California Maximum Security Prisons, where guards have recently been indicted for setting up fights and then shooting dead inmates with live ammunition, or the case in California where they boiled a, a psychotic inmate until his skin started coming off instead of giving him a bath. You know, the, the list goes on and on. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that one-third of people go into prison for drug crimes, one-third go in for property crimes, and only a third enter for having committed violent crimes. So, a, you know, a, a regime of total terror for a population, two-thirds of whom have not committed violent crimes. I don't think Americans really, if they knew that, would, would go for it. But at the same time, um, it is disturbing how popular, I don't try and deny at all in my book, how really, really popular this law and order crackdown is with people. It still it still gets votes, is what you're saying. It, it still gets votes, and it's not just from paranoid white suburban voters, but African Americans in the inner city in neighborhoods that are being systematically targeted by the cops. I, I you know I've talked to community organizers frequently who who w- without being prompted talk about how the people they work with can run down how racist the courts are, how prison doesn't work, and then when asked what do you want for the neighborhood, they want more cops and they want more repression. So people yeah people like repression. 
But that ultimately, I don't think, means we should um, let our society slip towards some sort of, you know, anti-crime police state where the Bill of Rights is, is just tissue paper. I completely agree, Christian. Thank you very much for being on the show with us this morning. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Your book is fantastic. Everybody go read Lockdown America by Christian Parenti, P-A-R-E-N-T-I. You can find it at verso.com and in your neighborhood bookstore. Thanks, Christian. Thank you. Take care. Take care. This is Hell broadcasts four hours of long-form interviews, international news, and political talk hell every week. Visit thisishell.com for ideas, not ideology. And we have Andreas Tapadakis on the phone right now. Andreas, good morning. Good morning. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Uh, pretty, pretty well. No, let's Tupadakis, you did a pretty good job. All right, Tupadakis, all right. Uh, a friend of mine is Greek, and I should have had him uh, make sure that I was getting it right. So why don't you tell people what your, I know that your position was quote-unquote classified at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, um, but uh, why don't you tell us what you did there and why you resigned? The last job that I had uh, with the National Labs was in Livermore here, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. I was working at the uh, uh, nuclear uh, weapons program, which is called Stockpile, Stockpile Stewardship Program. And this is a program that has many uh, facets, one of which is to analyze the aging processes of the materials uh, used in nuclear weapons, such as uh, high-explosive uranium, plutonium, organic materials, and polymers. Uh, when I came, I was not informed uh, all the way what specifically I'm going to be doing. Um, I believe one thing, they believe something else, and these misunderstandings should not happen uh, to people in the future. And uh, I found myself, while I came to do environmental work, to be expected to do work on nuclear weapons. What, I'll get a question just real quick for you. When you went to Los Alamos, was it a similar situation in which you weren't told exactly what you were going to do? Is that typical or not? No, no, really. Uh, there, <coughs> I worked... And I knew I would work in uh, disposing uh, legacy plutonium materials from the Cold War era, and um, and that's what I was doing actually. Uh, but people really should know uh, a few things about these matters, and especially scientists are they ready to go and work to these places? Uh, that you might believe that you will do environmental work and or or non-proliferation work. But uh, when they go in there, they will find out that, they, that that is absolutely an illusion. And I will explain to you uh, why. Uh, another thing is, um, except this kind of uh, thing, is that when uh, you take an environmental or uh, believing that it's not weapons position, uh, the money that they are devoted to these kind of projects are not as, as much as, of course, the ones that they are devoted for the maintenance or, or creation of nuclear weapons or in general, uh, weapons of mass destruction. And so the budgets for environmental work in brackets, I would say environmental, and I will explain why, mm -hmm. um, they, they shrink, they are unstable, they are moving around, and so people find themselves sooner or later to have to work in nuclear weapons. Well, by that time, they have moved into a new town, they have made new friends, their wives or husbands have taken a new job, their, 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 their children are going to school now, they have made friends, People find it almost impossible to remove themselves from uh, jobs that they really know they shouldn't be working on. 
And I proposed, because of my own case, I proposed that they should have an informed consent. When they hire scientists, they should tell them uh, they don't have to say specifically exactly what they will do if they want to follow what they call national security, but they should have a formal consent, an informed consent, which will say, I read and I understood that I will work, do work on weapons or things might change and I will have to do uh, weapons work, otherwise I will have to leave. I read it, I understood and I signed it. This practice is, is uh, very well uh, followed in our society for so, so many other things. Why not to see this happening in, in, the, in the national labs? I know many of the people that are there, uh, they witness to me that uh, they are tortured consciously because they know they're playing tricks with their minds and they know what they're doing. What exactly did they have you, have you doing with the weapons? I was working the Stockpile Stewardship Program, which is to um, analyze, as I, I said before, the aging process of the materials and make sure that the nuclear arsenal will be safe and reliable. Uh, and when I realized that uh, that's not what I had in mind, I tried to find an environmental or non-proliferation work. Well, I discovered very soon that that was an illusion. Why? Because the time that they were saying we're trying to uh, tell the other nations not to proliferate and make um, uh, weapons of mass destruction, at the same time, uh, we are having uh, many places in the United States uh, making new weapons, spending uh, billions of dollars for this uh, matter of fact, and, and at the same time we're saying that uh, we try to bury the waste. Well, by burying the waste, the only thing we're doing, we're creating more space for new waste to come in, and it's coming in already. Uh, it's uh, very obvious to people that they search these matters in the news, and also we have uh, non-proliferation programs, which is, uh, in fact, they're supposed to stop proliferating all these mass uh, weapons of uh, mass destruction all over the earth. But what we really do is uh, we're telling the other nations, don't do it, and if you do it, we're going to bomb you. But we ourselves are free to make as many as we want. So we are under a very... I would say, hypocritical mask here, and all the world knows it. And it is unfortunate um, that it happens to be our country to do this because it is in a very good position to bring peace on Earth. The power that the United States has today is so much more than other, any other nation that if, they, if the authorities, if the leaders, if the ones that they get up in the morning and they say, we're going to work for humanity, if they really wanted to bring peace, they could do it instantly. But I'm afraid they are not. They, their actions show that it, we make laws and, and take directions that we, we only think how to exploit the weaker nations. And I'm not saying this is only for the United States. This is happening in every nation. Russia is doing the same thing to countries weaker than them. China is doing it, and if not now, probably is planning to do it in the future. The most powerful nations of the earth are uh, trying to exploit the weaker, and they do it by maintaining uh, a, a, a two-sword, a two-edged sword, and we know what it is. And the people that they are running up and down in the highways and trying to make uh, ends meet, and they have lost even the time to have a few minutes to have a glass of wine at night or to say a story to their children, 
all these beautiful things that have been taken away. And I see this and my heart breaks to see millions of people all over the nations driving into this insane mode of life because, as someone put it very nicely, uh, our nuclear policy is really based on irrational fears, driven by a tiny group of elites who shape public opinion. And uh, we scientists have to use our skills for humanity, not for a machine that we have no control over. Why do you think U.S. nuclear policy is driven in this direction of telling people that we have to, for instance, the nuclear test ban treaty, we want everybody to stop testing nuclear weapons. When we hear about Pakistan and India doing nuclear tests, the United States gets all up in arms, yet we're the country that is the most flagrant abuser of the uh, test ban treaty, and we are the ones that keep developing more and more weapons of mass destruction. Why, are, why do you think that our government, why do you think that we're driven in that direction? Why do we continue to raise our military expenditure year after year after year when we're in, quote-unquote, a time of peace? I can tell you why, my friend, and uh, many people don't believe this, but they will be surprised very soon. Uh, it is driven by a, a small group of people that their dream is to put the whole world under their feet. It is uh, driven by dreams, uh, uh, unreal dreams, that they can uh, stop the war all over the face of the earth, that they, uh, they can drive sickness away by their technology. Uh, they believe they are the ones that they can think correctly. They think that they are the ones that uh, they will bring peace and prosperity to the world. But their actions show that the only thing they are doing is to uh, watch only the curves, how the markets go, and uh, if the um, curves don't go the way they want, they give the command to their uh, war machine to be activated and, and bring devastation to uh, civilians and to children and women and old people, not even people that have decided to, do, to go to war. And... People have to wake up. People have to be willing to become aware where their tax money go. If their tax money go to uh, scientists and to officials and to so many other people, millions of people worldwide, I'm not talking about only the United States. Don't take me wrong. This is happening all over the face of the earth. Each country has its own group of elite. And uh, they're driving the majority of the poor people, the majority of the middle class, those that, they, as I said before, they don't have time to spend, not even with uh, their families and their friends, they don't even have time to spend uh, some minutes with themselves to see what they're doing. Uh, if these people, us, do not see where we are spending our money, uh, this uh, small group of people are driving the planet into a final destruction. And it is very clear. I don't say anything new. I will quote a sentence from the Russell, Russell Einstein Manifesto. This was write, written by um, Russ, Russell. Bertrand Russell, yes. Richard, yes, uh, who was a winner of Nobel Peace Prize and uh, sent it to Einstein, and he signed it because he wanted also the humanity to know about this. And that was actually the last letter that Einstein signed before he died. Most people in the world do not know Einstein the man. They just know Einstein the scientist. They do not know that he was a strong advocate for peace. And I just quote one sentence from the whole manifesto, which is still three pages manifesto. It says there, People can scarcely bring themselves to grasp 
that they, individually, and those whom they love, are in imminent danger for, of perishing agonizingly. And these words are not, you know, to raise emotions. It is not to say something which is not coming up. It's not something that is not real. This is very real. And we know World War II started uh, by Germany, and Hitler was claiming that he was uh, doing humanitarian, humanitarian work for a minority of Germans in Poland. And the whole world started that way. And we see today how many times we have humanitarian wars. And nations are around the world, they are really pushed to the edge because they are, they are pushed to such a way that they don't have food to eat. When they have nuclear weapons and they don't have food to eat, guess what they will do one day? And, and radiation and nuclear, win uh, nuclear winter and all these terrible things that they will be coming up on the earth, they do not respect borders. They do not respect poor or rich people. They don't discriminate between uh, Christians or Jews. They don't discriminate about anything. They will cover the whole earth. And people should find who they are themselves and become strong and take a stand and, and do what is in their heart, what the higher call in their heart is telling them to do. We're speaking with Andreas Tupidakis, who is the uh, formerly of the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories. Andreas, I'm really glad to hear that there are scientists who are driven to be doing the right thing, to be doing the moral thing. Here in Chicago, as you know, and we've had people on the show from the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, yes. it's a wonderful organization, and th those are people who are scientists who are driven by peaceful means instead of just doing whatever they can in order to make some money, in order to get the military bankroll. But I think one of the things that people do not understand is that well, we survived uh, atomic bombs in the past. Uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki happened 55 years ago, and we survived that. I don't think people have a grasp today of what the typical nuclear weapon that would be used today, how, how much damage that would do. Being somebody who does have direct knowledge of that, what type of damage would just, uh, just like the most average, like let's say, for instance, if North Korea or uh, a country that is not as nuclear advanced as the United States, how much damage would a nuclear weapon, even at the lowest level today, how much more damage would that do than, say, Hiroshima or Nagasaki? They can hardly grasp. That's the only thing I can say. They can hardly grasp what the power of one little piece it has today. It is thousands more powerful than what was in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In three seconds, the whole New York, the whole Moscow, the whole Pekin, the whole whatever country, big country you can name it, it will be gone. And only that, but people don't grasp the higher, the higher truth of that, that besides the millions of deaths that will happen in, in, in seconds, you're talking about more million people living an agonizing death for years if they survive. They cannot grasp what they have made. They have no idea what the beast is all about that they have in prison in a bottle and any moment that bottle will break and it will be released. They have no idea the public has been kept unaware of this truth. Uh, 
What about when we hear from people that there is the possibility of, say, a quote-unquote limited nuclear war, which sounds like something that, oh, that's not so bad, that's going to happen somewhere else, whatever. If there was a limited nuclear war between Pakistan and India, for instance, I'm just going to use that as a hypothetical, how much of the world would feel the effects of that quote-unquote limited nuclear war? I can tell you this. Uh, If the damage, the physical damage, is not going to be as great as it would be when we will have, I didn't say if, I said when we will have uh, uh, World War III, uh, if the physical damage is not going to be a complete damage, uh, the damage is going to be unspeakable. Uh, But I think that, I believe that, truth on that kind of occasion of an unlimited, uh, as you said, you used the word limited, would be that people are going to panic. People are going to uh, act in a way that they will not desire to act. People will revolt. People will become uh, confused. Uh, I'm not sure uh, if they will have time to go and report like you do now. They will try to, to save themselves. I grew up in abroad in Greece, and I remember myself in the high school, first years of high school, our, our teachers are, were teaching us to go under the desks because there was a crisis between the United States and Russia. Now that I have lived in this environment, and I know what it is when they will be using them, I find it so unbelievable that the teachers were telling us to go under the desks. It shows how the public has completely misunderstood and kept in uh, purposely away from the truth. What are you going to do if you go under the desk? It makes absolutely no sense. And this is the greatest secret in the whole universe that has been kept so well maintained and, and for purpose, because without this power, exploitation cannot take place. To more questioning of the 60s, uh, was of the 60s was the largely reaction of the first generation to grow up under the bomb. And unfortunately, the present generation has largely been lured into thinking that all has, became, has been taken care of. Nothing has been taken care of. The danger we are today is thousands of thousands more than what we were 50 uh, when we, were, we had the cold, uh, the, the cold War era, now we have started a new arms race. People are working, going up and down on the highways, trying to make, to make ends meet. I feel compassion for all these people, all these poor and mid-class people, the majority of the earth. They're going up and down, and their money, their, their, their sweat is put for a small group of people that their philosophy is, we are going to have more thousands of nuclear warheads as, as from what we have today. This is an overkill. Even if somebody believes that we need the national security, it is absolutely nonsense to continue making more. It is, it is only done so some scientists, as I used to be, and some, politi- pol- uh, some uh, People in authoritative positions will, will maintain their salary coming in, their paycheck coming in. And who will stay indifferent in this truth? Who will stay indifferent to know that millions of people today, billions actually, are striving to make ends meet, and they have been terrorized by the fear they will not have a job tomorrow? 
for the sake of a small group of people that they will have a paycheck of $200,000 a year or $300,000 a year to come in. This is not something that we can ignore as human beings. We're speaking with Andreas Tupidakis. Andreas is the person who used to be in charge of the Stockpile Stewardship Program at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Uh, Andreas, this is the last question I have for you this morning, and uh, it's the, we call it the question from Helks. It's We try to give you a really tough question here at the end. But I'm curious, uh, first of all, before I even ask you the question, would you consider yourself a pacifist? I, I was, believe I, I, I believe, yes. Of course, I consider myself a pacifist, but I believe every one of us is a pacifist. Right. That's the kind of that's that's the way I feel about it. That everybody wants to have a peaceful end to whatever, but that you know, and I think that in a way, pacifist has become a disparaging word, and I don't think it should be. And I think that everybody wants a peaceful end to things. So this, everyone, so this, down in his heart, he wants to have peace. Right. So this is my question for you. Then. Uh, I guess it's a two-part question. I'm kind of curious. Then, first of all, why did you go into nuclear science? And you're not asking people to abandon nuclear science. What do you think is the good that we can get out of uh, the study of nuclear science? My friend, let me make make this clear to the people that are listening to me today. I didn't say that I will, uh, I do not uh, urge people to go away from nuclear science. I do. I uh, appeal to every technician secretary, scientist, engineer, custodian, everyone who does work that is related especially to nuclear weapons. To nuclear weapons, specifically. nuclear weapons, to remove themselves as soon as they can from this place of work. And I do believe that there are many other alternatives for energy and any other things that we want to have and we do not know we do not need to play games with nuclear energy uh, whenever a war happens the one nation that strikes the other as you can see from history doesn't strike on the mountains my friend and you can see the war in Yugoslavia today they were striking on utility uh, utility uh, plants yeah. plants they were striking where the nerve is where the power is where the your breath is and so whenever something comes up tomorrow, uh, make, be sure, be certain that where the bombs are going to be dropped are going to be in places where nuclear energy is generated. And every, everybody who wants to know the truth in his own heart, he knows that. He just has to look around, even our most recent uh, wars around the earth. In, uh, in Kuwait, where was the, the, the heat? was not on the sand. It was on the wells. It was on the oil. So we know what the psychology of a man who is afraid is. He's going to hit wherever thinks that the other person has power. And so if we have a lot of nuclear reactors around the earth, guess what is going to happen tomorrow? They are not under the face of the earth. They are on the face of the earth. And even if they were under the face of the earth, still everything will leak out sooner or later. And so you're asking me the question, um, again, I want to, 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 remind, to remind myself what was your question, that I do appeal to everyone to remove themselves from these positions, and even the ones that they are working on nuclear energy, uh, they really have to think about it if we really need such a direction. It is a matter of power, and the ones that they promote it is because of power and because of the exploitation uh, desires. 
Andreas, it's been, <clears throat> excuse me, Andreas, it's been an honor having you on this show. I think that you should be a hero and a lightning rod for all scientists who are involved in nuclear weapons research today. You quit a job that was a high-paying job. You are now working as a part-time teacher. You do not have health insurance. You've put yourself out on the, out on the branch. You're out on a limb now because you stood up for what is important, and I think that you should be honored for that, and I really appreciate you coming on our show this morning, Andreas. I really, really thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to, to, to share my thoughts with the people that are listening. And my hope is I would like to, to state what my vision is. That, uh, uh, is to, my vision is to see nonviolent, vibrant, and skillful leaders in every nation who will be willing to carry the spirit of the peace movement on the table of international negotiations and decision-making processes. And before we go off the air, I would like to give a phone number and electronic mail address of uh, the place that they can find out more information if they want about uh, the global network to eliminate nuclear weapons. Uh, it's called Abolition 2000. They can call the number 510, area code 510-839-5877. I will repeat it again. 510-839-5877. And the electronic mail address is W S L F at earthlink.net, and this is Western State Legal, uh, Legal Foundation, which is a part of Abolition 2000. And I hope our talk today has, uh, bring, uh, has brought awareness to people that are listening to us, and they will do what their heart is calling them to do uh, for these matters. Again, thank you very much for being on the show with us this morning, Andreas. The Abolition 2000 phone number is 510-839-5877. That's 510-839-5877. Or you can email the Western States Legal Foundation at wslf at earthlink.net. Thank you very much for being on the show with us this morning, thank, Andreas. Thank you very much. It's been an honor. Me too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Good morning, Joyce. Good morning, Chuck. How are you today? Good, very good. Listen, I want to, i got to get my notes together here just one second. Sure. Uh, I just want to say something before we even uh, start this whole interview. Let me grab this. Is that I think that some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about, I mean, I'm sure that this whole thing with Pinochet being released and Pinochet being, well, being captured, then being released, I'm sure this opened up a whole bunch of old wounds for you. And I, I think that this has probably been a very emotionally trying time. So if I say anything yeah. that you think is, like, out of line or anything, please smack me in the side of the head or something. All, All right? right. Is okay. this live or is this taped? Uh, this is live. Uh-huh. <laughs> it is live. I'm telling you, I'm not kidding. Okay. <laughs> All right. So let's, so uh, there are people out there who have not seen the wonderful uh, 19, at least I thought it was a wonderful movie, 1982 movie, Missing, right. and are not familiar with the story about what happened with your husband. Some people here in the Chicago uh, area are familiar with what happened with uh, Frank, Frank Terugi. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, and just recently in the Sunday uh, Tribune, they had a, a pretty good article about it. A little bit. Oh, biased. did they? Yeah, a little good. bit. A little who bit. Who was biased. the uh, author? Um, oh, it doesn't matter. His Never name mind. is Paul Salopak. You know what? Uh, I can... I just got. I just found the link to it, so you know what? I can send this to you okay, uh, via email or something. Good. So why don't you tell us what, I mean, I don't know if there's any way that there's a short way to summarize this, and I don't want you to at all. What happened? Well, let's, uh, I guess let's start it this way. Why were you and your husband, Charles, uh, Charles Horman, um, in Chile 
at the time of the at the time of the junta? Well, uh, we had been there for a little over a year, about uh, fifteen months actually, and we had decided to go to Latin America uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, Charles's military duty was over, and we wanted to uh, actually go away together and. He was very interested in the fact that Allende had been elected uh, in Chile. And uh, as a journalist and as a, a filmmaker, he was uh, very intrigued by that political process. And so we did head down that way. Uh, we took, we took um, our time actually getting through Mexico, taking some Spanish courses, uh, wending our way down, if you will. When we arrived in Santiago, we... We encountered some other Americans who were there. There were a lot of students. There were a lot of um, writers um, intrigued by the process that uh, that was happening then. What what intrigued them? What do you think really captured their imagination? Well, uh, Allende, being a doctor and and a socialist, had um, had plans for some change in Chile in order to. Um, uh, become the owners of their own, if you will, economics. There were a lot of uh, foreign investments in Chile, and uh, there was some talk of nationalization of some of the industries, um, although they did pay for them. Um, there was a change. They were proposing some change so that there would be more benefit of the economics uh, to, the, to the nationals. So the money, instead of just going to foreign firms... Yeah, nationalistic program, really. Instead of the economic resources going to foreign firms and then just taking it out of the country, it was actually going to go to the people who should be directly profiting from what's in their country. That was the idea. Okay. Right. So um, so you guys went down there. You were interested in the process. And yes. Frankly, uh, Charles was uh, the intellectual and the one who read everything and um, was very interested in the process from the journalistic point of view. I couldn't help but notice that Portillo uh, with its ski slopes were there, so we started down with my skis along with us. Okay. You know, it was it was a, a, a two-sided approach, if you will. Good skiing? Terrific skiing. <laughs> <laughs> but um, when, we, when we got there, we decided to stay for a while, and Charles became involved in a documentary film, and uh, I actually, uh, I was involved in a um, an animated film, uh, but I was also, because I, I've been doing uh, technology stuff, uh, information technology stuff all my life, uh, I did a stint with the uh, Forestry Institute, um, putting a system together for them. So there were, there were uh, several different things that we were doing down there at that time, and Charles was writing about it and uh, sending articles back. He was also doing some translations from the American press to... Um, uh, in Chile, uh, so there was um, there was a lot of activity, and quite frankly, it was a very interesting time. People everywhere were, were talking about politics, and uh, everyone was totally involved with the process and what was happening, pro or con. Everyone was talking about it, so it was a very exciting uh, time. And as of course the year went on, and um, we came through the summer, there was. There was a false coup during the summer, and uh, tensions started to rise. So when our friend Terry Simon came down to visit us, um, we we wanted to show her parts of Chile that we thought she would be uh, sorry to miss. 
but we also wanted to do that in a sort of speedy fashion so she could get back on her way. Um, uh, she was going to Peru next, and we realized that it was it was a very tense time in Chile. No, so, let me let me. I hate to interrupt you at this point. No, I just, go ahead. I just want to ask you. Uh, so the year that you were down there, throughout that whole time. Was the Allende government starting to? I, I, I'm going to use the word unravel, but that's not exact. That's not exactly accurate. Due to the American blockade that had happened on Chile, to make sure that uh, items weren't coming in and out of Chile because the United States was so paranoid about a new socialist government. Well, Nixon's plan to make the economy scream was being felt. Let's say that. Let's say it that way. Okay. On the other hand, um, there was a greater. Um, a greater majority uh, of the electorate that was voting uh, for uh, the Allende administration in the interim elections. So this wasn't a violent revolution. This was a velvet revolution. This was a revolution that was, it was, uh, Allende was, was democratically elected to his position. He was democratically position. elected. Changes were coming about because the electorate was supporting him in his program. Even though the U.S. was making the economy scream, and it was very difficult. And there were there were ways in which, and it, it became very obvious after the fact that the U.S. had been funneling money in to support the trucker strike and, and uh, some, all of the demonstrations against uh, the Allende administration before the coup. Okay, so I'm, I'm sorry. Now I'm sorry that I interrupted you like that, but I just wanted to make sure that people understood that the United States was directly involved in overthrowing this democratically elected government. The Nixon administration was furious that uh, Allende had been elected and was throwing a lot of stuff. And there was co- there were covert. We learned we learned later all of the information about the covert activities as well in terms of funneling money and promoting a coup. So September rolls around, and the September rev- rolls around. I took our friend to the mountains to show her Portillo. I came back to Santiago with her and realized my passport had to be renewed. So Charlie took our friend to, to Viña del Mar to show her the ocean side of uh, Chile, and that was when the coup hit. It was um, it caught a lot of people by surprise. So they were they were trapped in Viña. But what happened is they accidentally met. Uh, many American military personnel who were in Vienna as well and were not only excited about the coup, but were taking a certain amount of credit for it. So so what should have been an entirely covert community of U.S. military personnel, they were, they were introduced to Charles and Terry, and Charles was a journalist. He knew that they weren't supposed to be there, and they weren't supposed to be doing what it was they were taking credit for doing. Now, he, was given, he and Terry were given a ride back to Santiago after a few days because there was an ent- a, a total 12-hour curfew, and nobody was moving, nobody was getting out of their house. I was in Santiago. I could hear the strafing of the uh, of the Moneda. I could hear the strafing of other communities by the planes during this few days of total curfew. Um, there were machi- there was machine gun fire at night and during the day as well. So it was it was very difficult to know what was going on. There were some radio broadcasts telling people to denounce their their leftist neighbors or their foreign neighbors, and it was a very frightening time. But a few days later, Charles and Terry were brought back to Santiago by Captain Ray Davis, who was the head of the U.S. military group in Santiago and naval intelligence. And when they got to Santiago, Terry and Charles went to the embassy to see about getting out, to see when the next flight might be available for Americans. 
And because of the curfew, they stayed downtown that night. The next day, they came back. They came home because we're out of town a little, not out of town, but in one of the um, suburbs. Okay. And they came to the house, and Charles related this encounter with uh, these American military people. But the person he was quite certain was a dangerous person was the man who'd given them a ride back from Vina del Mar who had gone through all of the Chilean military um, blockades and barricades uh, with no problem because of his identity. And so Charles and Terry um, and I uh, decided that it would be the best thing to try and, and get back to New York as soon as we could. So the plan was put together to try and get the tickets the next day, if at all possible, and get help from the embassy to do that. So. I did not go downtown the next day with Charles and Terry because my, I had not accomplished the renewal of my passport. Uh, the coup had happened, and it just I, I, my papers weren't in order, and that seemed like a dangerous thing at that time. So I went to check on other Americans in another suburb, and that's, uh, it's, I did not get back. If you saw the movie Missing, it was correct in saying that I did not get back that night. I spent the night in a stairwell. Just, just trying to keep calm and and to not not be arrested. Um, and the because next they morning, were, they were shooting people who were curfew breakers, like you would have been by sleeping in a uh, exactly, stairwell. They exactly. were shooting them on site. Would have been arrested and maybe and maybe shot on sight. It, it just didn't move when the curfew was was in place. And in fact, the reason I didn't get back that night is because the bus drivers were incredibly nervous and they weren't making regular stops and there were no taxis. Everybody was going home for the curfew, so it was just impossible to get, for me to get home that night. And that's that's the late afternoon that Charlie was picked up by the Chilean military. We learned later from the neighbors that they took him and a box of books directly to the National Stadium where they were detaining many, many people um, and torturing them, as it turns out. So... Um, I learned, uh, the next morning I went back to the house and it had been completely ransacked. And at that particular moment, I didn't know whether or not Charles had been there. Um, I had I'd hoped that he had had trouble getting back there, too, and it was just a matter of vandalism or ransacking of the house as opposed to anything else. So I went across town. The, my neighbors said that, they did not. My neighbors did not tell me that Charles had been picked up at that time. They told me that the military had been there, and they would probably come back, and that I should leave. So I went to another part of town to stay with a friend, and there I learned that the military people had been making calls to some of Charles's friends about him, calling him an extremist, and asking them if they uh, knew about him, if they were extremists, to very intimidating telephone calls. Now, so I find so I knew then that he'd been taken. Just to just so people understand the level of the totalitarian government that was going on there, what would have been misconstrued by the government as extremist work that Charlie would have been doing? At that point, everybody who had um, who had been in support of the Allende elected Allende government was being labeled extremist because the po- the point of the Pinochet coup was to throw out the the people that were uh, elected um, 
and they were labeling them with with the most outrageous, um, you know, uh, political um, stance, and and calling them the enemy and the extremists. So, if Charles and he read everything, so the box of books, if that contained anything that was uh, construed as supportive of the Allende administration, then they would. Uh, that would have been the material that they would have used to call him and label him an extremist. Now, the other, the other thing, of course, is that we, we are still, to this day, trying to figure out what role the American intelligence agencies and agents took in, in not protection and, and maybe in being involved in the death of my husband. Yeah. So all of this is, is still unknown because uh, to this day, many of the documents are not being released, and uh, hopefully they will be. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Right. I just want to reintroduce you again, Joyce. This is, we're speaking with Joyce Horman. Uh, Joyce it was depicted uh, in the movie Missing, the 1982 movie by Costa Gavras. And Joyce, again, I really want to thank you for being on this morning's show. So continue. I'm sorry. Um, so... So the next thing was to go to the American embassy and to tell them that Charles had been taken. And because my home had been destroyed, I asked them for asylum. Uh, and the American embassy said, I'm sorry, we don't have accommodations here. Um, you must remember that the Swedish embassy, the Italian embassy, the French embassy, the English, all the other embassies were taking political asylum um, refugees uh, at this time. But... I was turned away, and I, and so, and so I was I was given the task of getting Charles's passport number to them, um, and and filling out some forms about what was stolen from the house and things like that, which I was completely surprised by. I was surprised by the attitude of sort of business as usual attitude at the U.S. Embassy when there was so much violence, there was so much gunning and and strafing going on in the city. And yet there was this little sea of calm in the, in the American uh, embassy or consulate. It, it was extraordinary difference. It was um, difficult to deal with. The, um, the lucky thing was that Terry had registered her hotel uh, with the consulate. And so because uh, she had stayed down uh, town that night, I didn't know exactly where she was. And that way I was able to locate her. So she and I hooked up and started figuring out how we could get the American help. Um, and since uh, she knew that Captain Ray Davis had acquaintances in the Chilean military, we decided to um, contact him and ask him if he would help to find Charles. Um, it was very a very conflicted sort of activity because uh, because it was well known that the Americans were not not on Allende's side, they were on Pinochet's side. And, and in fact, um, we believe that that's one of the reasons that we didn't get the kind of help that we wanted to get in locating Charles. Charles had witnessed that there was this covert activity uh, by the U.S. officials. Stumbled across it, basically. Stumbled across it. Um, and, and so I and Terry looked... Uh, uh, for Charles in the ways that we we tried to figure out whether or not we could go to the stadium. I asked the ambassador if we if he would take us to the stadium, and he was actually 
offended and said, what do you want to do, look under all the bleachers and in all the corners? And, of course, that's exactly what I wanted to do, and that's exactly what the other ambassadors were doing, the Italians, the Swedes, everybody. The Swedish ambassador, Edelstam, was was smuggling people into the Swedish embassy to save their lives from this, this terrible violence. But our ambassador thought it asking too much of the new Chilean government to, 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 to enter the national stadium to look for an American citizen. I mean, it was audacious, utterly, utterly unbelievable. Did you believe it? So, any, pardon? I'm sorry. Did you believe at any time that because you were an American citizen that you would be safe? You know, it was, it was, we knew in theory that we were supposed to be protected, and yet, knowing also and having heard of, of uh, all of this activity uh, against the Allende government by, by the American government, it was, it was hard to feel uh, that we were going to get the protection we deserved. So, so you try and operate, and yes, I know this is the way things, you, you go to the people who are supposed to protect you, even though you're, you're harboring this understanding that they're they're on the side of the people promoting the violence. Right. It, it's a difficult situation. Yeah. So, um, so, we, so Terry and I decided that she should go back to New York as soon as she could get on a plane. And after she left, and it was a day or so, I learned of Frank Teruji's death, and that, that made me call Charles's father. I mean, we'd been in contact and talking about this, and they'd been pressing Washington for information about Charles and protection of Charles. But I asked him, Edmund Horman, Charles's father, to come down to Santiago at that time to join me in the search because I, I, I simply wasn't getting the, the help and the protection that I had been searching for down there. And now that you had found out that a friend of his, Frank Teruji, who's here from the Chicago became, area, had exactly. been executed and tortured, you knew that there was the possibility that your husband was in the same it situation. It became very urgent and, and very possible that my husband was in extreme danger uh, or worse. So at that time, Edmund Horman, with his great courage, came down uh, to look for his son with me. And we, and, and Edmund Horman was able to get the American ambassador to arrange for a visit to the stadium. And as the movie depicts, Ed Horman went and looked for Charles Horman there and, and called out for him and was hopeful of finding him and didn't. Um, uh, and so it was, it was, uh, at least two weeks later, before um, the Ford Foundation people told Ed that they had heard that Charles had been killed in the stadium, and it was it was uh, then confirmed by the Americans and by uh, uh, an autopsy. Or, uh, it was actually confirmed by uh, uh, dental records, but um, it it was such such a. a difficult and, and uh, horrible situation that when we did get back to the United States, we went to Congress, Ed Harmon and Charles's mother, Elizabeth, and I and Terry went to Congress to ask for an investigation, to ask them to look into this because it wasn't right. And, uh, and then uh, a year or so later, when we heard the testimony of a Chilean intelligence officer who said he was in in the office of uh, General Lutz, a Chilean military leader, and Charles was there, and it looked like there was an American intelligence person in the same room where it was determined that Charles knew too much and had to disappear. 
Then we launched a suit with the Center for Constitutional Rights against Kissinger and the State Department for information concerning my husband's death because it looked very much like uh, they had the information. They knew and and in uh, a very direct way were involved um, with knowledge or with looking the other way. Everyone agreed it would have been impossible for the Chilean government who was looking for recognition from the U.S., who was looking for help in consolidating their power and getting it, why they wouldn't protect American citizens at that time. Uh, they just couldn't have done it without a nod from the Americans. That was everyone's conclusion. And it turns out, 20 years later, when we find an unredacted paragraph from documents that, that were given to us back in the late 70s as totally blocked out, 20 years later, there's a document release that shows one of the paragraphs that tells us the State Department came to the same conclusion. They said there's circumstantial evidence that the U.S. intelligence agencies played an unfortunate role in Charles Horman's death, and it needs to be investigated. And the investigation didn't happen, and they blocked that conclusion from us and from our suit against Kissinger in, the, in, in 1980. They didn't give us that, the, the benefit of knowing that they agreed that this should be investigated until 20 years later we, act, we, we finally see that, that conclusion. It's just extraordinary. It's extraordinary. And certainly U.S. citizens don't want their government behaving like this. It's impossible. You know what really uh, irritates me about this whole thing, uh, irritates is a very weak word for this, um, is that this seems so un-American. We are supporting a military dictatorship over the democratic desires of a people in order to protect the concerns of corporations, 3,000 firms supposedly in Chile that were American firms. We are supporting what people, we're not protecting American citizens. We're not protecting democracy. We're not supporting democracy. We're only supporting what's right for profits and what's right for stability and what continues to foster to our socialist paranoia. A military group that is so abusive and so um, horrific that the, there are 17 years of torture and uh, human rights abuses that you just haven't heard about in, in this scale for for a long time. And at the same time, our government is telling people about how horrible the regime of Pol Pot is, right. and he was doing almost the exact same thing that Pinochet was doing. Anybody who was against the regime that took over was being executed. Right. So uh, let me ask a couple questions. Uh, uh, well, how did you feel when Pinochet was nabbed, caught, whatever, by the British uh, government when they were holding him. How did you feel? Did you feel that finally there was going to be some vindication? It was thrilling. Uh, I was not the only one who was thrilled. After so many years of this, this lid of secrecy and this pretense that, that there was something right about the Pinochet uh, you know, uh, um, uh, administration, it was, it was such a relief and such a thought that perhaps there would still be some justice, that there could still be some justice. The notion of Pinochet being extradited to Spain and put on trial for his crimes against humanity was exhilarating. 
and and I'm still grateful for those 16 months that he was detained in in England, uh, because the world has come to their own verdict about his about his criminal acts, and uh, I was at first disappointed that he was released to Chile, but now I'm angry about it. Everyone sees that he is he is not the frail and fragile person that that um, the medical reports uh, suggested, and that's why the four seems to be such a difference. Um, and what was reported, and and what seems to walk off the plane in Santiago. So, it's 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 more than disappointing. It's it's angering again. If there's anything that the Clinton administration could do for you to help, I don't know if the right phrase is heal these wounds or to give you some closure. I don't know what the uh, psycho word would be, but um, what could the Clinton administration do to help you out? We want to get to these documents. We know the intelligence agencies have documents that they have not released and have said they will not release. And Clinton has already mandated that human uh, documents surrounding this area and this epoch of human rights abuse in Chile should be reviewed and released, as many as possible. And the State Department has actually, that's where we got this one document in October. They have taken the steps to do this. The intelligence agencies have not and they have a certain kind of impunity nobody nobody looks at the documents that they classify as operational documents that they don't even consider documents though that's where our story is being that's where our story is still hidden and needs to be uncovered and i don't know how to get i don't know how to get to that because we we've got this this privilege in our intelligence agencies that that says some some of these things you just don't even consider releasing Somebody has to look at those. If there was an abuse and if there was uh, wrongdoing on the part of U.S. intelligence agencies, someone has to be able to remedy that and see it. And we're 26 years beyond it. Enough already. We've got to close this chapter and move on, but we can't do it without the truth. That's what we want. And a far less significant aside to this than the uh, unfortunate end of your uh, husband's life is that one of the reasons I would like to see this information come out is I want the myth of Richard Nixon being a foreign policy genius to be completely ended. Because if he was a foreign policy genius, then why is he overthrowing democratic governments in other countries that are being democratically elected and forcing in a military dictatorship that the newspapers still say... uh, uh, Pinochet was responsible for possibly 3,800 executions, but those were only from 1986 on that they know about. They don't even know about the first 13 years. They have no way of documenting, supposedly, how many hundreds of thousands of deaths that this military regime, this undemocratic regime, a regime that the Nixon administration helped get into power, may have caused. It, it just, it, I really want people to realize that, you know, this foreign policy myth of the genius of Richard Nixon is completely a fallacy. Ask the people in Cambodia, Laos, Chile, uh, you, you can go on, Vietnam, about his foreign policy genius. Joyce- it, was, it was brutal. Uh, and there's an old quote, and I, I'm not finding it right now, but it, it was from Kissinger that said, I don't know why we should stand by and let a country go, go socialist through the, through the uh, lack of understanding of its populace, something to that effect. That's not quite the quote. But what he was saying was, you know, democracy for democracy's sake it has nothing to do with anything. If, if, it's, if it's not the way we think things should be going. Yeah. And it's simply extraordinary that our leaders were holding those opinions 
even then, even back in 1973. Yeah, we believe in democracy as long as it supports what we believe in. Exactly. Which is uh, hideous. So, uh, uh, Joyce, this is the last question that we have for you. Uh, we call it the question from hell. It's the question that we hate to ask and you hate to answer. But you know what? It just doesn't always work out that way. It's not going to be that big of a deal this week, um, especially for you. And I appreciate you coming on the air with us this morning. Joyce uh, Horman is the widow of Charles Horman. Uh, their lives are depicted in the movie Missing by Costa Gavras. You can uh, get it at your library or at any video stores. It's a 1982 movie called Missing. Um, Joyce, why in the movie... Sissy SpaceX character, who is you, supposedly, goes by the name of Beth. Did you, were the, you the only person, because everybody else's name seemed to be... Everybody extra. else's name is the real name. Yeah. I'll tell you why. Because when we were first approached by this movie, um, I was still very bruised, and I thought, Hollywood is going to do a movie. It can't possibly be the right thing, and you can call me something other than Joyce, because I just don't trust you. And that, that was the, the, the seed of my distrust of everything right then. And when Costa Gavis came onto the movie, uh, onto the project, I was greatly relieved because uh, he had a real understanding of Latin America. And I was, at that point, if anyone had asked me about the name thing, I would have said, you know, you can, you can put my name back in there if you want to. But no one asked. So it just carried forward the way it had initially uh, fallen out. And... And and it's okay, because the story is still the story. And how do you feel about the movie now? I am very proud of the movie and very grateful of it, because it, it, managed, to tell, it managed to tell our story in such a way that Americans were compelled to understand the truth about it. And I just cannot be grateful enough for that. Well, thank you very much for being on the air with us uh, this morning, Joyce. And I will contact you this week because I want to send you this uh, uh, article and make sure that you get a hold of it. And uh, I hope that everything goes well for you. And uh, it's a new century. Hopefully the United States will finally actually support democracy around the world. Well, we're still hoping. Yeah. (laughs) I'll have my fingers crossed, my toes crossed. Thank you very much, Chuck. All right. Take care, Joyce. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You are here, and this is hell. Manuel? Yeah. yeah. Hey, good morning. How you doing, Manuel? Good. How you doing? Pretty good. So, uh, Manuel Callahan, you are a member of Acción Zapatista, so why don't you tell our listeners what Acción Zapatista is? Well, Acción Zapatista is a small collective of uh, folks who protest the U.S. involvement in the low-intensity war in Mexico, and we support the struggle of the Zapatistas and other uh, uh uh, peasant communities throughout Mexico that are resisting neoliberalism and also specifically the low-intensity war. Uh, and we try to uh, educate folks here in the United States and elsewhere about the struggle in Mexico. You know what? Uh, your site, too, is fantastic. It's a great reference for... Uh, it's like the other sites that I was talking about earlier today with some of the other people on the show. It's uh-huh. one of those places that just is a great... Uh, clearinghouse of information, not only on Zapatistas, not only on what's happening in Chiapas, but on uh, recent history going back, you know, as far as, what, 15, 20 years of uh, Mexico. So could you uh, give out that web address again to our audience? The web address is www.utexas.edu slash students slash N-A-V-E. Okay, so you are a uh, student at University of Texas? Uh, yeah, I'm a doctoral candidate at UT. Oh, okay. And uh, what is your doctoral candidacy in what field? Uh, in history. 
Okay, and what? Uh, and so, are you uh, focusing on Latin American history? Well, not really. I look at the Southwest uh, United States, nineteenth century. Okay, um, what got you? Uh, first of all, are uh, are you a Mexican by heritage, or were you born in Mexico? I'm Mexican by heritage. Okay, and uh, so what got you? Besides for just your heritage, what got you interested? What sparked your interest in what's happening in Chiapas? What got you motivated to be involved in what's happening in Chiapas? Well, uh, actually, been watching what's been happening in Mexico for some time. And uh, in January 1st of 94, when the Zapatistas uh, take over uh, certain communities militarily, uh, we all just uh, saw the immediate need <clears throat> to set up some support groups throughout the United States, and I was in Austin at the time, and uh, we just immediately mobilized, in part because the, it was clear that the Zapatistas would need international support so as not to be eliminated militarily, and that remains true today. So uh, there was a, that's a practical reason. I guess the, the political philosophical reason is that the Zapatistas are very much a, a, an organization that inspires uh, a great deal of um, admiration, not just be, well, pr- primarily because they're not a traditional guerrilla group uh, in kind of the, the Latin American model. They very early on made it clear that they didn't want to take over state power and that they were committed to sacrificing their lives to creating political opportunities and new spaces for different kind of political relationships and radical democracy. And so many of us who uh, organized that January '94 had already been doing work in that in that vein. We were already committed to trying to do work around radical democracy in our own in our own communities. And one of the points that the Zapatistas have made over and over again, and quite brilliantly, is that they want to join with other groups and invite other groups to to, to join them. In working towards radical democracy and and, challenge, and challenging neoliberal programs and regimes, you know, I think that people here in I think a lot of people who uh, how can I say this? Uh, your average Joe who is sitting in a bar and watching the news on TV, if they see any coverage, if if they see any coverage on what's happening in Chiapas, if they see any coverage of the Zapatistas, they might be under the impression that the Zapatistas are. And uh, and I want you to I want to give you the opportunity to uh, dispel this myth. Are an insurgent military force that is taking advantage of people in Chiapas who are people who are desperate for anything to help support them because the Mexican government has so totally turned their backs on them, and not just turned their backs on them, but abused their human rights. So. How would you explain to people how the, uh, how would you tell people that the Zapatistas are not just a military force that is holding the people of Chiapas hostage? Well, I mean that's a good point. They, because the Zapatistas are a military force, and uh, it's important that they be recognized as a military force because then the Geneva Conventions of of War apply, uh, and they've been those conventions have been violated by the Mexican government and the Mexican army. Oh, so if they're, if they're identified as an army, uh-huh. then if, uh, the, if Mexico starts attacking people in Chiapas, then they have to start uh, following the Geneva Convention. Well, Me- Mexico has already been attacking people in Chiapas. Right, right. And that's the second point in answer to the question, and that is that the people of Chiapas have been struggling against 
um, the Mexican government, most notably the, the the PRI, right? Right. And and the ruling oligarchy that's been linked to the PRI, in, specifically in Chiapas, and they've been large landowners who have been exploiting the land and exploiting the people, and marginalizing the communities in Chiapas. <clears throat> Chiapas is is one of the most it is the wealthiest state in Mexico in terms of natural resources. And what are the natural resources that are there? Well, there's 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 cattle, there's oil, there's hydroelectric power, there's t- timber, hardwoods, uh, there's other minerals. Uh, of course, there's agricultural products like corn. Okay. And uh, so the struggle is there's actually been a struggle for generations of by by campesinos by Mexican peasants indigenous folks and actually what the zapatistas do is make a statement that enough is enough yeah what they say in spanish is ya basta enough and they they wanted to draw attention to the plight of the indigenous people in chiapas especially because that the agreements around nafta would 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 be according to the zapatistas a death sentence to the indigenous communities because it would completely destroy their link to 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 land, it uh, and and their survival as a people, and and so uh, Article 27, which was revised, the Article 27 of the Mexican Constitution, which was revised, allowed for uh, uh, indigenous-held land through the what's called the Hilo system to be privatized. And so that would completely undermine their connection to the land and their livelihood. So the Zapatistas propose a military solution, but it's not, it's not totally a military solution. And in fact, it's just to draw attention to the plight of the, of, the, of the indigenous. It's the government that insists on a military solution to the conflict now. Since 94, since the government's response has been a military military one, and the Zapatistas' response has been one of peace. So the Zapatistas, even though they're a guerrilla army, are in fact a guerrilla army committed to peace. So it's, it's kind of a paradox. Right, and 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 is a matter of fact, you were just saying that they're not real. They're a military force, but they're not really a, a real force. They're not an efficient military machine. But that's one of the things that always strikes me uh, about the situation in Chiapas, about the situation of the Zapatistas. Why haven't they just been completely overrun by the Mexican army, which is a very, you know, which has been used pretty arbitrarily and pretty ruthlessly in the past? Why haven't that? Why hasn't the Mexican army just gone in and invaded and just be as brutal as they have been in the past? Or why haven't they got American support for the United States to? play it off in the media as these are horrible terrorists that we need to clean up this area and get the support of the United States to help them clear out the area. Right. Well, in fact, they tried to do that. A lot of uh, U.S. commercial interests, uh, economic interests, uh, more or less made uh, it clear that the Zapatistas had to be eliminated militarily. And there's a famous memo from Chase Manhattan Bank stating that that in order to restore investor confidence in Mexico, the Zapatistas would have to be eliminated. This would this was early, I'm sorry, this was late in 94, early 95. I'm glad that Chase Manhattan Bank is deciding that people need to be eliminated. <laughs> right. And that what happens is that memo is actually leaked and published widely in kind of a, an alternative media, and finally comes to attention of 
of uh, mainstream media. At any rate, that mobilizes uh, international uh, international resistance to the government's policy <clears throat> and the U.S. support of the government's policy in eliminating the Zapatistas. So immediately after the the revelation of the memo, President Zedillo in February '95 institutes what what's the uh, a more intense phase of the low intensity war, which is what we're still facing now. And at that moment, uh, there's an incredible mobilization internationally around, like for example, Mexican consulates throughout the United States. There, there are protests, and so the Mexican government's forced to back down, primarily because of the the the, the international attention that's brought to their strategy undermines, further undermined, ironically, investor confidence. And the peso was fluctuating and so on. In, in Austin, for example, after February 95, uh, after the government moves in with, the time was 40,000 troops, now there's some over 70,000. Uh, we were protesting weekly at, at the Mexican consulate. And that was happening all over the United States. And so, it's around February '95 that there's a large international network of uh, Zapatista solidarity supporters that are watching what the Mexican government's strategy is going to be. So the the, the strategy that the government chooses is to increase the low intensity war, and that's what it's been doing um, since. And uh, and describe for people uh, what low intensity warfare in this scenario. In this theater, what does low-intensity warfare against the people of Chiapas mean? Well, low-intensity war in Chiapas has meant increased uh, troop deployments throughout throughout the throughout Chiapas in such a way to encircle the Zapatista support communities um, on, on one level. So, in order to isolate them from one another, right? To well, to encircle them. Isolate them from the rest of the country, and then what? what then the, what happens is the army will set up camps throughout the region. There's some 600 military and um, military and police installations in Chiapas at the moment. Some 638, Jeez. Mi uh, either military, police, or immigration checkpoints or bases, uh, including like bases to move heavy equipment and so on. A lot of the equipment paid for by the United States under the auspices of the fighting the drug war, like helicopters, anti-personnel carriers, and uh, riot, uh, all kinds of riot gear and so on, mm -hmm. and, and also jungle warfare material and so on. So what, but what happens is that the, when the Army is in there, they disrupt the, the normal life of the community so that people can't, they can't farm, Women are, are threatened uh, with violence, like sexual violence. A number of women are raped. Uh, men are beaten. Uh, men are, are um, picked up and imprisoned. And if the military doesn't do it at certain moments, then paramilitary groups will do it. And the paramilitary groups are trained by the military and operate in the, in the region that the military, in fact, controls. So uh, the other aspect of that, Control is the creation of networks of roads to move men and materiel, and those roads also work to facilitate the the 
exploitation of natural resources in the very region that that the, the Zapatistas, in fact, control. Uh, for example, oil is big now. Right. We've, we've known that oil has been kind of the main prize in Chiapas, and the biggest reserves are in the region that have the the highest concentration of Zapatistas and Zapatista support communities. And uh, the army has, the army's incursions are creating roads so that eventually the oil exploitation will be made easier once supposedly the Zapatistas are eliminated. You know, it, it really amazes me, Manuel. We're speaking with Manuel Callahan, a member of Axion Zapatista. You can check out their website at utexas.edu slash students slash NAVE, N-A-V-E, that the United States goes around uh, enforcing democracies, supporting democracies around the world, trying to make sure that uh, countries have democratic reforms, uh, being upset with China not, and uh, not having democratic reforms, being upset in uh, whatever country, and even the Kosovo War, uh, you, hear them, you hear the United States government saying we're doing this in order to protect democracy or to bring democracy. It's always about democracy. Yet here at our own doorway, just south of us, on our border, is a country that the democracy is going around in, as Human Rights Watch said uh, this week, uh, Mexico's problems include torture, arbitrary detention, and extrajudicial uh, executions. Executions. Yeah, so why do you think that... Do you think it's racism? Do you think it's... The United States feels that they're out of their, it's out of their control. Do you think it's because the private sector wants to continue having this low-paid uh, group of uh, workers uh, at the ready at all times? What do you think the reason is that the United States has let this go on for so long? Not that uh, the United States should be dictating what goes on in Mexico, but at the same time, they shouldn't be so in bed with a country that is close to being a military dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's a good question. It's a tough question because um, there's an intense spirit of nationalism in Mexico against the United States because there's been a history of, of uh, international well, international conflict between Mexico and the United States, right? There was the U.S.-Mexico War in 48. Right. And there was uh, the punitive expeditions during the Mexican Revolution. There were a number of filibusters that took place between 1850 and, and 1915. Uh, so there's a long history of, of animosity between the United States and Mexico, and then there's, and of course there's violence against Mexicans along the border. So uh, there's that history, and yes, I think you're you're right to suggest that at least one element is to keep Mexico in such a state. I don't want to say a client state fully, but in such a state, so that cheap Mexican labor continue to come to the United States and there's Mexican labor that is part of our economy throughout the United States. So there's all there's that. And there are natural resources that are important to the United States economy that are in Mexico. So what I think one one answer uh, besides that background like I think one answer has been <clears throat> that the United States has uh, come up with a different strategy of exploiting Mexico's resources, whether they're human or, or, or uh, uh, material. And, and that is to kind of keep a hands-off policy with regards to Mexico. 
and and um, and Mexico is a key um, ally for the United States in terms of control of the region. Like for example, the biggest CIA base in the hemisphere is in Mexico City. Okay. Uh, so I think what the strategy has been is to draw as little attention publicly to any kind of conflict with Mexico because of this long history of, of tension. And there have been a number of Mexican leaders and, and what we call like technocrats that are, have been coming to the United States to be educated uh, through like since the 60s. And they're the ones who are in power now or who, who are maybe coming out of power, but like uh, Carlos Salinas de Cotari, the mm-hmm. previous president at Ernesto Cedillo. These are all, these are all guys that were uh, educated in the United States. A hundred years ago, these leaders would have been educated in Paris. Now they're being educated at you know, Yale and Harvard. So the point I'm trying to make is that if pub- publicly, internationally, it's kind of low-key, but there is a, a strong re- political relation between the new leadership in the PRI and the PRI because many of the people who are taking on those roles have been educated in the United States. And part of what NAFTA ref- represents is the Mexican oligarchy and kind of Mexican upper class as, it's, as it was growing, trying to become more like the United States. And that's what kind of part of the process of neoliberalism. Right. Like uh, bringing Taco Bell to Mexico City. Oh, lovely. Kentucky Fried Chicken and malls and, and more uh, American investment like hotels and so on, that kind of thing. The same thing that they are protesting this morning in uh, France, where uh, the gentleman uh, we were saying before, Jose Bove, is uh, uh, on charges of uh, bombing a McDonald's that's under construction. Uh, one of the reasons that he said he did it, and his uh, very militant group apparently um, is saying that he did it, and 30,000 protesters are outside the courthouse right now protesting the fact that he's even being tried, is the fact that uh, American culture is being forced down the throat of uh, French. We see the same thing in uh, Mexico. And two, a couple of things I wanted to mention, and I'm kind of worried about our time here, but a couple of things I wanted to mention was, one, from what you were saying and what I've been reading, you were talking about the paramilitary forces completely working within the Mexican army, yet, you know, they're separate, but they're trained. Sounds a lot like the Colombian paramilitaries that even actually uh, are in camp with Me- with the uh, Colombian army, the pro-government army, the pro-gov- the government that apparently uh, Bill Clinton yesterday gave billions of dollars in order to, or uh, sorry, hundreds of millions of dollars in order to continue backing the, their uh, government there. And it's a government that's propped up by drug profits, which has been an a, uh, allegation about the situation in Mexico. Would you compare what's happening with the leadership in Mexico, a paramilitary uh, force wandering the countryside, and drug profits uh, propping up the government? Would you compare it to what's happening in Colombia, or is that just a generalization that's a horrible generalization for me to make because it's making an assumption about all Hispanic, South American, and Latin American Uh countries? Well, Mexico becomes an alley for drug, the movement of drugs. Okay. It becomes like a, a depot for drug movement. So it shifts from Florida to Mexico in the 90s, late 80s and the 90s. And, yeah, there was a, part of what happens is the control of the, of the party, the, the PRI, and its links with the military, 
is able to sustain drug trafficking through throughout Mexico. And it's people like the Zapatistas who are saying that that's enough. We can't. We our people suffer when a few people, uh, a few like military and police and government leaders profit from drug trafficking. What they're saying is that a lot of these people who are connected to the to the ruling party are able to profit from drug trafficking and with impunity. And a lot of the human rights violations that have taken place in the 80s and in the 90s prior to the Zapatistas were in fact as a result of drug trafficking and people trying to you know, get either people getting caught up in it or, or people trying to resist it because it, it, it destroys their communities. And I think you're right that there is a parallel and that that it, it leads to increased militarism and that's what's going on in Mexico. Definitely. Uh, it, it you know, the Zapatistas have been resisting and fighting drug traffickers in their communities for for some time, even before they become uh, come to public's attention in ninety four. And uh, would you compare what the government structure is in Mexico, uh, something akin to uh, a boss system in a major uh, American city like maybe Chicago, where um, where there, it's kind of based on patronage and who you know, and not only that, now with NAFTA, they are able to uh, flex their muscle of eminent domain and just take land away from people in order to profit for the larger corporations or for the government? Yeah. Well, the term in Mexico that's used is, is called cacique. A cacique is, is something of like, like a, a boss, uh, a political boss. And sure, there's a long history of, of exploitation and co-optation through patronage. And uh, it's, it's a somewhat complicated history uh, because it has a, a, a strong rural component to it, a, a major rural component to it. But yeah, I think that that's a good way to talk about it. We we've often um, talk about caciquismo, kind of bossism, as uh, part of the fight at the at the at the most basic level at the, on the ground, right? Right. So another element of the low intensity war kind of uh, falls in falls in that uh, uh, kind of uh, emerges in that way. The 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 PRI, for example, are able to go in and with their clients, with their caciques, uh, ensure votes for the election, for example, by distributing goods uh, and intimidating people. Right? Uh, the paramilitary is able to be organized in part by the support of, of, of particular caciques, very notable caciques in the region. So it's a major, it is a major component. And it ultimately... It prevents any kind of real democracy in, the, in at whatever level, uh, and it leads to all kinds of corruption, whether it's a corruption that's manifested through drug trafficking or embezzlement in banking industry, for example. There was a huge case of embezzlement in, in, within the banking industry, um, and, and all kinds of uh, other exploitation that's going to take place around, like for example, around oil. Yeah, and the, and the privatization that remains an issue has to be understood in terms of, of, of caciquismo at all levels, uh, you know, you know, local, regional, and national. Now, the people who are running for president, and from all accounts that I have been reading in uh, uh, on the Internet and newspapers, magazines, whatever, 
from all accounts, the vote right now is up in the air. Nobody's too certain who's going to win. But it looks like Vincente, uh, Vicente Fox and uh, Francisco Labastida are the two leaders at this time. Do either one of these, or maybe, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to pronounce this first name right, Cuauhtémoc? Cuauhtémoc. Cuauhtémoc. Uh, Cardenas. Uh-huh. Uh, do any of them, sh- they, none of them have really made, at least the two leaders of, the, of what, I, what I was saying, Fox and La Bastida, have not made human rights a campaign issue whatsoever. Has Cardenas, and is Cardenas, or are any one of these three, uh, if they got into power, would things change for the better for the people of Chiapas? Or for the people for all of Mexico, the people who are being abused by human rights and being abused by this uh, boss system that is letting drugs go through the country and uh, continue the horrible image that uh, people here in the United States have of people in Mexico. Right. Well, Cardenas is, the mem- is a member of the PRD. He's right. under the PRD. And the PRD has suffered, uh, has suffered a great deal from human rights violations since 1988 after the first uh, election fraud well not the first election fraud but uh, the, the election fraud that brought Carlos Salinas de Gortari to power uh, and uh, the PRD forms soon after that and a number of their uh, members are victims of human rights abuses they're killed they're jailed beaten intimidated and so on so they've they've and that remains true today they continue to be targets of, of um, intimidation and violence and human rights abuses. So there is the potential, if he did win, which is a long shot apparently at this point, if he did win, that human rights would be a concern within a New Mexican government under Cardenas. Well, we, we have to—I don't know that he said anything explicitly about that, but we would have to assume so because their, their, their party has suffered greatly at the hands of the, the PRI. In La Bastida or Fox, would they do anything about it? Well, they've, uh, they, I don't think they've said much other than uh, La Bastida has made the threat that if the PRI doesn't win, there'll be a great deal of instability in Mexico. And that's kind of, there's a kind of a, a double meaning going on there in that supposedly if the PRI doesn't win, there won't be able to be any kind of control and, and order on one level. But on another level, because people aren't going to be, people may may likely respond to the level of fraud that will be revealed, if that's the case. Right. So there's the the whole question of instability. The other part of it is that it's kind of a threat, too. It's that, you know, if we don't win, there's going to be trouble, because the the PRI has been in power for almost 70 years. So a lot of uh, party loyalists are in all parts of the government. And the... uh, and that's also true of the struggles to get gain seats with, in terms of the legislature as well. Uh, that's also a struggle going on there. It's not just about the presidential election. It's also about the legislatures and the autonomy of a legislature vis-a-vis the presidency. Right. So that's an issue. Uh, La Bastida has been a very virulent opponent of the Zapatistas. And in his official capacity, for example, as interior minister and so on, he's done a great deal to increase the militarization and to coordinate the militarization and the military solution to the Zapatistas. And he's, he's very much an enemy of the Zapatistas. Um, I don't know he's, that he's said much publicly 
other than both Fox and La Bastida, early on in the campaign, said that the Chiapas problem would be resolved if they were elected. The assumption being with La Bastida that it would be a military solution, and with Fox it would be a solution of recognizing previous agreements that the government has failed to uphold, like the signs of the Accords. But we don't know that about Fox, and we can only assume that he's, he means that it, it, would, it would be a, one that respects the dialogue, but that's hard to, that's hard to gauge. Right. With the PRD and Caranas, there have always been open dialogue between the Zapatistas and the PRD, uh, and, and Caranas specifically. Except the Zapatistas are very clear that they're not, uh, they're making a claim that uh, the presidential election and even uh, the whole electoral process is not the solution to uh, greater democracy in Mexico. They've made that clear from the very beginning. So uh, there have been key moments, for example, when they've not been actively uh, participating in the voting process. For example, for the gov- election of the governor and legislators in Chiapas, previous to this election. It, so, it, it uh, just seems like such a quagmire that the people uh, of Chiapas are being stuck in between. You have this uh, horrible uh, one guy who says he's going to y- probably or insinuate that he's going to use military to get those people uh, out. The other one is at least saying that there might be negotiations, but underneath uh, the uh, pre so far, they uh, haven't really followed up on any of these negotiations with any type of uh, uh, honesty or uh, forthrightness. And you'd think that, um, you know, the uh, Pri has been in power for now 71 years, and uh-huh. you'd think that when the military slaughtered hundreds of protesting students in 1968, right. they would have been fed up with the Pri. Uh, but here in Chicago, we saw uh, Richard uh, J. Daley uh-huh. uh, do his police riot against the Democratic uh, Convention protesters in 1968, and the next day his approval ratings went through the roof, were over 80%. Right. And, uh, you know, there's just a chain of events that... Uh, have led Mexico to now, it seems like, getting close to the idea of at least getting rid of the PRI, right. but, um, and finally ending their blind loyalty, and I hope right. that that's what happens. But well, I'm, you know, I don't think that it, blind loyalty would be uh, accurate. Well, I mean, o- over 71 years, I'm saying, right. in the bigger scheme of it. But since 68, there has been a great deal of resistance against the PRI. And what the Zapatistas have argued is that the opposition has been an opposition that's been con- been controlled by the PRI and the PRI. Oh, okay. And the Zapatista's argument is that we have to come up with an opposition that's not mm-hmm. controlled by the center or the right, that it has its own agenda. And the Zapatista agenda is one of radical democracy, not not reformism within the existing system. Okay. And that's a that's a, a point that they've they've made uh, at different moments over the over the years. But I want to mention one other point that, uh, back to the previous question, is that um, after the election, the, the president won't take power until December. So um, that is a, a number of months, months for that a lot can happen. Yeah. And there's a great deal of concern and fear that that will be the period that Ugh. there will be a military solution to Chiapas. And La Bastida then won't be held responsible for solving Chiapas or for the way it was solved, because it would have been solved militarily, supposedly under the the watch of Zedillo. But, of course, it wouldn't necessarily have to be orchestrated by Zedillo, because by all accounts, 
he's uh, more or less dropped out of any kind of political leadership. Uh, he's um, become, I, I, as I understand it, very with, apathetic and withdrawn from any kind of political role, other than you know continue supporting the PRI. So it would be a, a coordination of like military and and higher ups in the pre that would coordinate the military attack in Chiapas. Right. So what we're concerned about now is making sure that our international uh, support network to protest any kind of action like that is in place. And we're starting, Zapatista support groups all over the country and all over the world are starting to think about what do we need to do in terms of an emergency response to prevent that kind of action. And uh, there's a group right now in Mexico that uh, working with the Independent Media Center here in Seattle, and um, they've uh, set up an, ind an independent media webpage so that uh, reports of any kind of abuse be because of the election and later because of the continuing low-intensity war can be posted so that people can keep informed about the escalation of violence and instability. What's that uh, URL? It, it's um, Mexico.IndyMedia. Org. Indie Media, I N D I E? I, I N D Y Media. Okay. So Mexico.indiemedia.org. Okay. Uh, Manuel, we only have time for one more question for you. We're speaking with Manuel Cal Callahan. Manuel is a member of Acción Zapatista. You can check out their website at utexas.edu slash students slash N-A-V-E. Or you can check out, as he was just saying, uh, keep up on what's happening with, in Chiapas with the Zapatistas by going to mexico.indymedia. That's I-N-D-Y-M-E-D-I-A dot org. And this is the last question I have for you, and it's the question from hell. That's what we call our last question every time. So are you ready, Manuel? I'm ready. All right, here's the deal. This is your opportunity to tell people out there before, they're, before they are tagged by the U.S. media as ruthless terrorists. Tell people in the audience why the Zapatistas are not. Well, the Zapatistas aren't terrorists because they're struggling for democracy or you know, radical democracy. And they're totally committed to creating political space and for people to be a part of the, a new democracy in Mexico and inviting us to join in that struggle as it also it, it reflects our own communities where we need the radical democracy in our, in our own communities not only because politically it's important but because it's one way to struggle against neoliberalism and the exploitation and the marginalization in the violence that comes with neoliberalism. So they're, n they're absolutely not a terrorist group in that they're, they're not proposing a military strategy to democracy or to inclusion or to their own cultural survival as a people, but one of peace, one of dialogue, one of encountering people. Have your information commodified by an uncaring Silicon Valley monolith. Like This Is Hell at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Good morning, Christopher. Good morning. I, I'm actually talking to you instead of you talking to my pager or my answering machine. Good. It's pretty, I, I feel up close and personal now, Christopher. Glad to hear it. Oh, excellent. Uh, Kevin, introduce yourself. Kevin Good Harris. Morning. 
Chris Bigosinski. Introduce yourself to uh, Christopher while Hello. I'm getting Good set morning. here. How are you? All right, now, uh, Christopher, I know that most of the people who are listening in the audience have heard of you. They've seen you on TV. They know that you've written uh, for The Nation, for Vanity Fair. Is there any uh, one thing that you'd like to tell any that you'd like to tell our audience before we get in depth into this interview about your book, No One Left to Lie to? Why is this book an important book to read now? Um. Well, that's a nice opportunity. Yeah, appreciate see? it. Sure. Um, I think because uh, a very large section of the a large section of a small movement, which is the the remnant of the liberal left in America, um, either were deceived by Clinton for a long time, or deceived themselves about him, or thought that the corruption and unpleasantness of his character was a private matter, and not related to his other corruptions and depredations and my the argument of my book which i think is different from the other accounts of clintonism is is that um his allegedly private character um was intimately related to the other failures and betrayals of his regime and so um it was partly an attempt to save the honor of the left when i started writing it and it's now part i suppose of the argument about what people ridiculously call his legacy and it's also a warning, I think, of, of the, uh, the amazing extent and rapidity to which politics has degenerated in this country in the last eight years. I think you did a, you've done a wonderful job in uh, throwing a life preserver, a life vest to the uh, left. Uh, one of the things that's always irritated me about this whole scandal that happened was if you were upset with what Bill Clinton did, then you would be seen as a traitor to the left for speaking out against what he had done in uh, not only just this Monica Lewinsky scandal, but in uh, all of the other problems that he had, the way that he backed off on uh, welfare reform and then just stripped welfare, the way that he backed off on uh, health care reform. Um, so why do you think that uh, people still buy into the idea that he is the left? Is it merely because relative to the Republican Party he's left? Or? Well, it's partly the way that triangulation and lesser evil arguments have caused people to settle for less and less and expect less and less and call for less and less. It's partly because there's a paranoia um, on some elements of the left anyway about the Christian coalition particularly and the extreme right to listen to people during the um, impeachment process you would imagine they were talking about a right wing coup they were literally talking they meant it too uh, this was an attempt I might add by the Republican Party in Congress to make Al Gore president that's what would have happened if they had impeached and removed Clinton from office it may by the way have been Al Gore's best chance to become president uh, but that's all that was happening and um it's, as a result, there's a refusal to face what I think are pretty unassailable facts. I mean, there's a chapter in, in the new edition of my book, in the paperback, about the, the various allegations by women who claim to have been raped by uh, Mr. Clinton. I think that the uh, prima facie, these allegations are true. Um, I lay it out as carefully as I can. There are some allegations I'm not sure about. There are some that may have been tainted by repetition. Um, but there are three cases that I have that are, are respectable liberal democratic women who don't want money who don't want book contracts who are if it matters socially upscale in other words they don't get the attack from James Carville that they're trailer trash right um, and who haven't um, uh, told their stories with any awareness of, of the other women in other words they can't possibly have compared notes 
so there's no chance that there's a, a right-wing conspiracy to bring these um, uh, women's evidence into print. In fact, it isn't as a result of any conspiracy. Um, and actually all three of them are women who wish that the story wouldn't be told. You know, uh, that part of your book, it does it lays out very well that there are uh, more than, you know, I, I can't say for certain 100%, but there, for uh, in my uh, honest belief that there is certainly no co uh, collusion between these three women. However, one of the things that I do believe that uh, the, I don't even want to call them the left, the people who support the Clinton administration um, believe that there was a right-wing coup or a right-wing conspiracy is because the media is so saturated with uh, right-wing hyperbole from people like uh, Rush Limbaugh or Dr. Laura Schlesinger or Bob Grant or whoever, or these uh, this videotape, the Clinton Chronicles. Do you think that that media, that far, that extremist right wing media, is what fueled this belief that uh, it, there was a right wing coup, or do you think it was, on the other hand, uh, the Democratic Party saying that there was one? Well, I think the, the, the elements of truth in both uh, hypotheses. In other words, the White House. Uh, people like my ex-friend Sidney Blumenthal, for example, would, would circulate a lot of these things, the Jerry Falwell stuff, for example, and they'd say, look, this is what we're up against. I mean, they would collect and recycle this material. So there's that. Um, second, there were some right-wing nutcases who thought, you know, that Clinton was um, an agent of the devil and was going to use Y2K to declare martial law and right. probably had three sixes tattooed on his rear end and so forth. There are always going to be people like that. I mean, indeed, the Republican leadership has often suggested that Bill and Hillary Clinton are dangerous leftists. I mean, we live in a slightly paranoid political culture, after all. Um, but the a remarkable thing I thought about the impeachment crisis was um, the way in which people like Billy Graham, for example, and Pat Robertson rallied to Clinton's defense, and the way also in which the Republican leadership was clearly scared of what it was doing and tried to back away from it, uh, because of two reasons. One, Wall Street didn't want Clinton to go. And two, the opinion polls did not. And one or other of those can be faced down, possibly for a short time, by the Republican right, but not both. You know, one of the things... But it's worth noticing, however, that Clinton was the candidate of Wall Street. Right, definitely. And one of the things that uh, really, and uh, I was mentioning this a little while ago, was that um, uh, the way that uh, the Clintonism seems to hold the left hostage. And I know that there are people, uh, a friend of mine, uh, you know, and I like to keep a wide variety of friends, uh, he is, uh, uh, he thinks Rush Limbaugh is too far left wing. Okay, he's so a very right wing guy. And uh, he believes that Clinton is incredibly left-wing. If there was somebody in the audience right now, and I'm sure that there are, people who think that uh, uh, Clinton is the perfect monument of liberalism, how yeah. would you tell them that that is just not the case? Well, I think I'm in a fairly strong position to do that, because I was at Oxford at the same time as Mr. Clinton, and I remember very well the house where he lived. I didn't know him, but I knew his set quite well. And there was this house in Lexford Road, in fact, where the, all the American draft resistors, resistors, I might say, not draft dodgers, okay. uh, lived. He turned out just to be a dodger, um, and possibly, by the way, an informer on his friends um, at the time as well. But I mean, I mean I'm, I'm of his generation, and I remember that, I remember that moment in, America, in the American political culture of the, the, the collusion of the establishment um, the war-making establishment 
against the civil rights movement and against political reform in the country and all that. And yes, it's true. I mean, to that extent, Clinton is the nearest to someone of my type who could ever possibly have become president. And that's how I know he's a complete phony. That plus watching him for eight years in Washington and having gone on the campaign trail with him. He has actually no politics of any kind at all, in my opinion. Neither does his wife. They're just a, a pair of completely opportunistic power worshippers. And in Clinton's case, an empty, psychopathic, unhappy individual who just simply wants attention. Um, but this, it's, it's a long, long time since, since they've ever, either of them, even professed any political principle. So if you wanted to I don't think he's right-wing either, by the way. I don't think he's a conservative or a reactionary. Um, I think he's a little bit more than an opportunist in that I think he would do, and I mean really do anything, literally anything, uh, to stay in power or to serve his own turn. And he, I, in my book, I allege that he, um, overruling his, even the uh, CIA and the general staff, um, insisted on bombing a pharmaceutical uh, facility in Sudan, practically the only medicine-making factory actually in that incredibly impoverished country, to try and save his own face in the week of Lewinsky's return to the grand jury. That's an allegation you couldn't make even against Reagan or Nixon. You know, uh, and the one thing that really bugged me about that bombing of Sudan was that very. it originally got... It, it wasn't even the top story on the front page here of the Chicago Tribune. It was a story on the front page, but it wasn't the top story. And when the evidence started coming out that this was more than likely not any type of military uh, installation, it got very little play in the press here. I'm not too sure how it did uh, nationally, but I, th I think that it didn't get covered enough at the time. Well, it was another case where the Republicans functioned. I mean, I know for a certain, because I've talked to them in person, that not just the Republican leadership, but the CIA and the, the Pentagon um, and the State Department. Actually, the State Department has, has now been forced to admit it, but they all knew at the time that this was a wag-the-dog episode. They knew that to be true. And again, sorry to seem as if I'm plugging myself, but all that is in my book. Right, well... Uh, a chapter on Clinton's war crimes. Now, the fact is they, they didn't... I mean, it, this does sometimes happen in Washington. They didn't dare make the allegation, not because they thought it would be too outrageous to be believed, because actually it's a very easy case to make and all the evidence is there, but because if that's true, what are the citizens going to think? Right. It, it, would, it, would dis, it, dis, it would discredit not just Mr. Clinton. It would appear to discredit the whole political class. It would disturb the whole consensus. They didn't dare make the accusation that they knew was true, because what are we going to tell the children if, the, if we have a president who's doing this kind of thing? Right. How are we going to keep? How are we going to keep order in the stock market? Uh, don't worry about you know, all of that kind of thing. You can't. You, they just they funked it. Um, so it's left to you know a few um, pathetic hacks like myself to um, <laughs> try and make cases like that. We were speaking with Christopher Hitchens. People who, in other words, who don't give a shit about the concept. Right. We were speaking with Christopher Hitchens. Christopher is the author of No One Left to Lie To on Verso Press. Um, one of the things that uh, we were talking with Danny Muller a couple of weeks ago. Danny is an activist with Voices in the Wilderness, a group that is trying to uh, end the sanctions against Iraq. And he believes, he is under the contention, and we almost wanted to, and it's very cold-hearted of us, start a pool on the uh, date that this would happen, that uh, Clinton will bomb Iraq to give uh, Al Gore another boost of uh, showing his power. Uh, do you think that that is uh, any... 
is that much of a stretch of the imagination to think that the Clinton-Gore administration would do that again? Oh, they're perfectly capable of it. And Clinton indeed started bombing Iraq the moment the impeachment hearings began and stopped the moment they were over, if you remember. I mean, literally, minute by minute, that was the timing of it. It was a bombing that did nothing except destroy the remains of the inspection process, by the way. It was a bombing. And that's another chapter in my book. That, that was a really terrifying week in Washington, I must say. That was a real strange love week. You realize it, it had actually happened. There was a strange love in the Oval Office. Right. And, but very few liberals were willing to see it. No, it's what's, what, what will be done to save Al Gore's fat face is far worse, than um, I'm afraid, than the bombing of Iraq, bad as that was. What's going to be done to save Al Gore's fat face is that Clinton is going to make the essential concession on Star Wars, which actually he's very nearly made already. He's making it surreptitiously. He's making it shamefacedly and in a cowardly manner. But they're going to make sure that the Republicans cannot uh, run against Gore saying he's weak on missile defense. And what so you're going to get Star Wars from the Democrats, which is worse than getting it from the Republicans, by the way, for those who want to ask themselves about lesser evil. And it's worse for this reason. It means there will be no public debate about it. There'll be no argument. There'll be no ventilation of the uh, case against doing this insane SDI. Um, and political opposition will be totally foreclosed. I think it might, I don't know, I think it might even happen at the convention. It may, it may be one of the things that Gore announces he's going to do in his acceptance speech. I'm not sure, but um, it seems to me it's a done deal. And that's, that, I think, will be the single most, most awful thing the administration, the Clinton administrations have done, because remember when he came to office, if you can think back that far and remember the sort of hopes people had, it was really the first authentic post-Cold War presidency. There was everything to play for in, in respect of disarmament and relations with the former Soviet Union and China. And now what have we got? A, a new and even more expensive and dangerous and ludicrous arms race. When we were speaking with uh, Danny Muller last week, I, I just wanted to mention this again, that uh, uh, he was saying that he actually is hoping that even though George W. Bush has said that he will even be harder on the Iraqi people than the Clinton-Gore administration has been, um, Danny Muller said, I would rather see Bush in as the president of the United States because at least then there will be a debate over what is happening in Iraq. And like you were saying, if, it, uh, if, the, if uh, Gore wins, there will be no debate. There will be nothing against him doing anything that is pro-military. No, of course. And that's, a, that, that's why, I mean, people forget this often, but you know, Mr. Kennedy ran against Mr. Nixon from the right, accusing Nixon and Eisenhower of selling out the United States uh, to the Soviet Union by allowing a missile gap to develop, which, as everyone now knows, and most people were able to find out at the time, was, you know, utterly false and known by Kennedy to be false when he made the accusation. He accused them of selling out to Castro as well. There were two areas, by the way, in which Clinton and Gore ran against Bush and Quayle from the right last time. One was Cuba, where they were for the Helms, what's become the Helms-Burton Act, which Bush was against because it's a restraint on trade, you know, at least. And the other was Israel, where the, uh, Clinton and um, Gore took the um, Shamir line on the negotiations with the Palestinians, and uh, Bush and Quayle took the Rabin line. 
And another odd uh, political bedfellow is that uh, it says in your book that Al Gore is the person who came up with the Willie, Willie Horton uh, persona in the Dukakis campaign. That is one of the things that, uh, outside of Dukakis putting on a silly uh, tank commander's hat and sitting in a tank, one of the reasons that people uh, view why Dukakis lost the election to uh, Bush. And then you see... What happens later is uh, Clinton trying to make himself look strong. And this was the first sign that I had, that first signal that I had, uh, had that uh, Clinton, there was something very wrong with this man, was when he went back to Arkansas to watch the execution of uh, Rick, uh, Ricky Rector, is his name, correct? Yes, Ricky Ray Rector. That's right. And why don't you tell people wh- who Ricky Ray Rector was and what makes this a completely absurd event? It was also, I'm glad to hear you say that, it was the first time I thought there might be something monstrous about Clinton. It was in, I was in New Hampshire with him when this occurred, and, and um, it's worth bearing in mind that it was while he was lying about Jennifer Flowers, because he doesn't lie about sex, um, as people so um, easily and lazily say. He lies about the women. He trashes the women. Somewhat different from lying about sex. Um, he and goes anyway, after the messenger and not lies the about, Well, yes, he says the women are sluts and, and liars and gold diggers, when in fact they are nothing of the kind. That's not like saying, I'm not having an affair. Um, and caught, caught out in this lie. Well, people agreed to give him a pass on this lie about flowers, which he since had to take back in court. But they didn't really believe him, and his, his poll numbers were crumbling. He flew back to Arkansas and selected a, a man off death row um, called Ricky Ray Rector, who was actually lobotomized by his own bullet. He didn't understand the charges against him. When he was tried, he didn't know that he'd been sentenced to death. He ha- he'd had no comprehension of where he was or what was happening to him. He would have met every ordinary um, a condition for a commutation of the sentence and would, have, and would have had one if it wasn't an election year, if it wasn't if, and indeed if it wasn't going badly for Clinton in New Hampshire. And they took him off from death row and, and snuffed him uh, to show that Clinton was tough on crime and, you know, was an in-charge guy in the South and couldn't be Willie Horton. Now, that was, well, that was, in my opinion, a flat-out racist lynching. The, the, the guys at the prison, and the prison system in Arkansas isn't particularly bleeding heart, I can promise you. I've been down there. Didn't want to do it. The prison chaplain resigned. The police witness uh, nearly resigned as well. Um, Mr. Rector used to save his pecan pie every evening, if you want a disgusting detail, uh, for later. When they brought him his last meal and then came to take him away, they noticed that he'd, he'd left the dessert on the side of the tray. I said, don't you want your pie, Ricky? He said, no, I'm going to eat it when I come back. He didn't know that, though he'd been told, he didn't know they were, he didn't understand that they were taking him away for the last time. Um, it was a bad business. The actual execution And you can even... imagine, can't you, what would be said. The whole, the whole thing was a bad business. Yes. The execution, I mean, I could go on, the details of it are finally very obscene. You can imagine, I think, what would have been said, even by the most milk-and-water liberals, if a Republican governor in a tough election had, had snuffed a retarded and lobotomized black a prisoner. His name would be very, very famous. But the, I wrote a column about it in The Nation. The late, great Murray Kempton wrote a wonderful column about it in Newsday in New York. And I think that was it. There was no protest about this. And so not only could I see coming a, a guy namely Clinton, who, who showed signs of being a, a monstrous individual and showed signs of having a very unpleasant relationship in his mind between sex and death, flowers and rector. 
But I could also see that the Liberals were all getting ready to sell out to this in advance. And uh, to say, well, it's, it's fine if he does it, because at least he's not a Republican. Well, this is a definite step down and back, and a real retreat. And I think it's taken a lot of people a long time to realize how far that retreat's extended and how the, the left and the liberal wing of the Democratic Party has now been more or less completely politically and, I'd add, morally destroyed. You know, uh, George W. Bush, um, really, it, it shocks me sometimes that uh, if it wasn't for the fact that he was George W. Bush, that he had that name with him, I don't think that he would be the presidential candidate. If he didn't have that money, if he didn't have that name, because of his horrible environmental record in Texas. Yet, what I don't get about Bill Clinton is... How do you explain his rise from being the governor of Arkansas to being the Democratic uh, Party's candidate for president of the United States in 1992 when his state... uh, Arkansas, one of the most important issues of the Democratic tradition, his Democratic Party tradition, has always been civil or civil rights. Yet his state didn't even have a civil rights statute. How still, did he? It still doesn't, as far as I know, and it's still a right to work state. So how did he rise to power? It wasn't money. It wasn't a family name. What was? What was the key elements in his rise to power? Well, there are two theories about this. One is in a book, a much better book than mine, actually, about Clinton by Roger Morris, formerly of the National Security Council. Right. He, he resigned, if you remember, from Kissinger's staff over the invasion of Cambodia and wrote a very good book about um, about Kissinger and another good book about Nixon. He, he has a book about Clinton um, called Partners in Power. It's about both the Clintons. And he believes that Clinton was recruited at Oxford by the National Security State, initially as an informer, I think I mentioned it earlier, right. on his anti-war... Um, braver and more principled fellow students. That doesn't seem to me completely unbelievable, by the way, as someone who was there at the time. I know that the big effort was made to spy on and infiltrate those groups, and I can very easily imagine Clinton getting an offer um, and sort of thinking, well, why not? It might do me some good. Um, It's easier to imagine that now than it was then. The point about it being that things then happen to you you if you stay with it, you know. I hope this doesn't sound conspiratorial. I'm just it's a, it's a hypothesis, but it would explain a couple of things. Why does a guy, as you say, fairly, from a fairly mediocre state with a very mediocre record, he gets all the right invitations. He gets asked to the Council on Foreign Relations. He gets asked to the various think tanks in Washington. He gets asked to the fundraising. He appears to have someone up there liking him. And, of course, he makes all the right moves, the new Democrat, the man who isn't ideological, um, the man who, after eight years of Reagan and four of Bush, was the conclusion that what's really wrong with the country is the Democratic Party's too much to the left. Well, this is absolutely music to their ears. I mean, I remember in New Hampshire, when he started off, he was running a lousy campaign, um, and he was, seemed to me an incredibly unattractive character. But all the mainstream press already had their story written, and they, they told me so in the, you know, in the bar of the Sheraton Commander in uh, Manchester. Um, we don't really need this primary. We've already got a candidate. Well, there's the new Democrat, Mr. Clinton. Yeah, it's it's already it's it's written. <laughs> and so he becomes president of the United States. He has a Democratic Congress. Why doesn't he get anything done? Why doesn't he get the welfare reform that he promised? No to? Well, he did get the welfare reform done, but he was the Republican one. Right. And the health care reform uh, never got done. Well, thank heaven. I mean, people think you know that. It, what a shame we didn't get this um, uh, welfare reform, but. Um, 
excuse me, this health care form, but it would have been a terrible thing if they had got it. And Hillary Clinton... It, it, I mean, it, again, I'm sorry to say it's in my book, but I mean, it, it was written by the help by the insurance companies, dictated to Hillary Clinton. Right. She then added a layer of, of bureaucratic nonsense to it, so that in a sense what you would have got would be the worst of capitalism and the worst of socialism combined, and then drops the whole subject that they've never mentioned healthcare since, and delivers the entire country into the hands of the HMOs. So there's one thing you can definitely say for those lesser evil fans out there who may be listening, that there's unarguably worse um, for Clinton being elected, worse than if Bush had been re-elected, is healthcare for everyone in the country, and not just for the patients, but for the physicians and the nurses who've been professionally undermined by HMOs, along with the civil liberties and welfare, and I think now SDI, Star Wars and the arms race, it's one of the three or four things that are measurably worse than if the Republicans had been re-elected in 92. Why is Bill Clinton better off in his, uh, in you know, polls, no matter how inaccurate they are, uh, why is he better off in the eyes of the American public when he uh, has a Republican Congress? Well, I think that's what the essence is of triangulation, is if you've got someone to run against, especially if it's someone like Gingrich, even if you agree with that guy on 90% of things, and in fact are more extreme than him on about 5 or 10% of them, then you do have that comparative advantage. Um, so that's the one that's um, played very brilliantly by Clinton. Um, after all, you know, the loss of control by Democrats of the Congress is one of the prizes one's paid to have Clinton but it did give him Gingrich to run against. That's the first comment. The second is, I actually don't particularly believe those opinion polls. I've never met anyone who's ever been asked an approval rating question. Most of the people I know would, I think, I hope, decline to answer such a stupid question anyway. Um, but let's remember of what material those polls were made up. And they were made up of things like the bombing of Sudan, which you know did get him a bounce in the polls, as it was intended to do. The other thing I never really understood, and I still, and even after reading your book, I, I mean, it, it's possible, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world that I just missed this. Um, how did Dick Morris, this very, very conservative guy, get into the inner circle of Bill Clinton? Oh, well, I, perhaps I don't make it plain enough in the book, but the reason for that is one of the it's reasons... It's very possible it's my brain. One of the other reasons to dislike the First Lady is, apart from her health care... Uh, sellout is that uh, Morris was her idea, uh, both back in Arkansas and in, um, in the White House. Whenever things got tough, she would say, send for Dick Morris, and was more insistent on that than Clinton. And I remember George Stephanopoulos saying to me after he, this was after he'd quit and after he'd seen through the thing, he said that the worst period of it for him was the time when, as he put it, Dick Morris was the president, where quite literally all the major decisions in the White House were being taken by Morris when most of Clinton's cabinet didn't even know Morris was on the staff because he was there under a code name and being paid, of course, with off-the-record money. <laughs> but it was his, and this is a guy who used to be Jesse Helms's strategist and is himself politically a very conservative Republican but who will work for anyone for money of which Clinton was able to raise mainly from illegal sources a lot. Oh, that's, by the way, the fifth thing I should mention. I mean, bad though they are, I don't think the Republicans have ever come up with anything as exorbitant as Clinton's violations of the campaign finance laws. I mean, they've never been so absolutely comprehensively, flagrantly trashed and violated as, as by Clinton and Gore. 
and extraordinary amounts of money raised from very sinister sources, front men for, for the Indonesian dictatorship, front men for the Chinese military-industrial complex. Uh, the scum of the earth, in other words, getting direct access to the Oval Office and, and handing the money straight, not even through the DNC, but straight into the president's hand. And do you think that this, uh, that Al, Al Gore has a campaign, campaign finance reform uh, policy that he's come up with in, for uh, election? And uh, George Bush's is George W. Bush's has been uh, seen as horrible by a group called Public Campaign, and they like Gore's better, but it's still not very good because it really kind of ignores uh, financing of or any soft money towards primary elections. But do you think this is again kind of a triangulation in which Gore can say? okay, I'm telling you that this is going to be the policy I'll try to put through, but then when he gets in office, that really never happens? Um, I think that's putting it very mildly. Yeah, I don't think he means a word of his campaign finance proposals. Any more than they meant, anyone more than Clinton meant, meant it when, you remember when they met um, with Gingrich and made a solemn bipartisan pledge in New Hampshire to do campaign finance reform within the next year. It was the last you ever heard of it. It's gone far beyond um, what people might or might not be prepared to promise. I mean, it's, this is a banana republic now, in my opinion. I, um, I, think, I think Washington has become a completely third world capital in that way now. There is just no, there's no pretense about the revolving door any longer. You just give the money straight into the hands of politicians and you press the button and the policy comes back. We're speaking with Christopher Hitchens. Christopher is a columnist for The Nation and also has a new book out, or a reprint uh, of, uh, it actually has new chapters and all, No One Left to Lie to on Verso Press, The Values of the Worst Family. Uh, Christopher, just a couple more questions for you. One of the things I've really been mulling over since I've been reading this book is trying to figure out the differences between Bush and Gore. And the Democrats really play on the feeling of fear. You better vote for Gore or it's only going to be worse. So I was thinking about what will be worse. Well, the one thing that is really hard to turn back the clock on is uh, environmental law, environmental uh, destruction. And everybody quote-unquote, knows that Al Gore is better on his record on the environment than George Bush is, but if you just look at how Al Gore, tur- you know, ignores, turns a blind eye to what the Fanuel brothers are doing in their sugar-growing uh, practices, in their uh, uh, complete, distri- just dumping phosphorus into the uh, Everglades, um, we see that that isn't always the case. So try to, if you no. can, find any difference between these two candidates, Bush and Gore? Well, I must say that what I've, what I've thought already about the, the character question when I first started looking at Clinton, that it, it does make a difference if a really wicked and unscrupulous person becomes president. Um, I, I can't just apply that lesson to him. I mean, I, I do look now much more closely than I used to at just what kind of person is involved. And I think that is a political issue. It's not a it's not a judgment call. I think it's a central political question. And I have to say that I think that um, Al Gore is a much better person than George Bush Jr. I think Bush Jr. is a very sinister and creepy person. And that's not made any better by the fact that he's extremely stupid. Not just ignorant, for which there is a cure, but stupid, for which there is not. <laughs> and that that's worrisome. Um, Gore is not a psycho. He's I mean, he's an opportunist, of course, and as you say, he's a slave to the special interests and a pushover for them. And yes, every environmentalist um, 
or person who claims that that's their main motive in politics should know that about him. But it's very, very difficult to make him morally equivalent to someone like, like Bush. For example, Gore has signed off on Clinton's uh, death penalty bill, um, which is the reason why the governor of your great state, a conservative Republican, had to try and put a spoke in the wheel of this terrible machinery of execution. That's a Clintonian innovation. But I don't think if Gore had been a governor of a state, he would have got around to signing 110 death warrants as Bush has without a qualm, knowing that most of those people didn't have a trial and some of them were probably innocent difficult to imagine yeah the our governor of our great so there's that yeah. um and i have to you know i have to in a sense argue against myself and say that but the thing is as long as they can as long as people can be kept on the two-party pendulum and and forced to um so to speak forced to choose so they have no choice in the choice then basically the consensus is safe as long as people can be persuaded to argue lesser evil um, and be subjects of triangulation themselves, then they may think they're voting um, their consciences or they may think they're making up their own minds, but they're not. They're having all that done for them. There really is only one chance, which is to, uh, is to try and uh, um, find an alternative party. You know, uh, Rabbi Michael Lerner uh, from, uh, you know, I always pr- mispronounce the name of his magazine, Takun. Takun, yeah. yes. Um, he was saying this week uh, that uh, Joseph Lieberman, it's really great that there is now a Jewish American who has been nominated for the vice president of the United States, but you have to look beneath the veneer, and beneath the veneer there's a man who is very much for the, uh, you know, these baby Star Wars. Uh, he's a very, very conservative person. Are we seeing yet again the Democrats embracing uh, conservatism, the end of the laughter? Is that what we're seeing right now? Well, actually... What, what Gore has done with Liebman is very clever because he, he's picked by far the most conservative of the choices available to him. He's, I mean, Liebman's way to the right of even of any of the other candidates who were uh, mentioned by the great mentioners. And yet uh, he's managed to present it as a bold and even a radical choice and an imaginative one. And that's smart, you have to admit. I mean, Liebman is a wholly owned subsidiary of the insurance industry, which is Connecticut-based racket largely and of course um, a wholly owned subsidiary of the military industrial interests which also dominate Connecticut so he's you know he's doubly safe from the establishment point of view plus which how wonderful he's a moralist um, I mean I don't know if you've been following this but there's I'm going down to LA for the um, convention on on Monday and I'm in Northern California at the moment I was going to go on Tuesday night to a party for the Hispanic caucus Mm-hmm. Um, for Gloria Sanchez, which was going to be Loretta Sanchez, excuse me, who was going to have her fundraiser at the Playboy Mansion. Right. Well, the, the Gore and Liebman have told her she's the co-chair of the convention and had a speaking slot. She won't be either co-chair of the convention or have a speaking slot. She has a fundraiser at the Playboy Mansion. Yeah, that's on the front page of today's Tribune because of the Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, just staggering. And this is what they think of as ethics and morality. Of course, Lieberman, I mean, making a big parade of his, of his um, morals by saying that, uh, you know, what Clinton had done was immoral, which was completely missing the point of what he'd done in the White House, which was to break every known law in covering up his corruption um, and his depredations. Lieberman makes this sort of big chin-pulling speech and then votes to let him walk. And everyone says, oh, how nice that there's a brave 
ethicist in the Senate, someone with, with, with courage who really cares about values. This is, absolute, this is the most insulting horseshit it's possible to imagine. It translates into bullying the Hispanic caucus and saying you can't um, have your fundraiser at Hugh Hefner. It's just amazing. Yeah, I mean, and that's to, that's to try and outdo the Republicans from the right, without trying to outdo the Christian coalition. Yeah. All right, well, uh, Christopher, this is the last question I have for you. It's, uh, it's uh, what we call the question from hell. So are you ready? Absolutely. We're speaking with Christopher Hitchens author of No One Left to Lie to, The Values of the Worst Family. Christopher, are you ready to write an epitaph for the access to power uh, for the left, that there is no more access to power for the real left? And do you think that that epitaph has anything to do with campaign financing? I wouldn't say that was the question from hell. (laughs) Uh, I was braced for something much more intrusive. Um, <laughs> let's see. Um, do I think there's any hope? No, I don't. Um, I don't. I think. I mean, I think the politics is now completely, securely, um, and um, impermeably uh, in the hands of the special interests, and I don't see any any chance of it being detached from them. And I think that a large part of the, the, the complete and, as I say, irretrievable success of that has, be, has been self-inflicted. A lot of the liberal left has done this to itself by making excuses for power, by settling for less, by, uh, by making um, a mantra out of the lesser evil argument, by refusing to do its own thinking, by having no courage and no principles. And they've, they've, they have allowed this to happen, and um, not just permitted it, I mean, they've encouraged it, they've, they're complicit in it. And they've invented a whole series of excuses for power in the recent past, which will be used against them by future administrations um, as defenses for corruption and for the protection of their elite. So I think it's pretty bad. I think the best one can do is to say, well, I, I am no part of this. I didn't help this to happen. Tried not to um, echo the arguments that power deals with and justifies itself with. And wait for better days, but those will be a long time coming. Do you think it had anything to do with uh, campaign financing, or did it just have to do with uh, the feeling of the uh, citizenry? Well, I think the two things have unfortunately become fused. I mean, if you now look at the reporting on any candidate in your local paper or in the New York Times or on the um, where, whatever, the first thing they say is, does his or her war chest, an expression that irritates me, uh, I hope you do. Yes. Is it big enough? That's the first and sometimes the only question about what is, you know, the, another lazy phrase then comes in, that politician's credibility. It's in the same way now that I've noticed that movies are reviewed by their box office gross. Or, right. Um, well, look, this is a consumer society, but, I mean, there must be, perhaps there might be, considered to be some cultural limits to it. So the people started using these um, vernaculars themselves, right? It wasn't just that that's the way the game was officially played. It was the way that people thought it should be played. It was the way they, they started using these arguments themselves. And using the, they internalized the consensus in their own mind, if you like, in the same way as people do when they say, they use the word bipartisan as if it was a good, a good word. Partisan is always a bad word, isn't it? Right. It's in the language. The language, the fish is rotting from the head. You're already echoing the cliches of the of of power 
And, um, oh God, I don't know. I mean, if somebody was to make, I'll give you another example at random, if someone at the Democratic Convention was to make a big attack on the politics of division, I think every liberal would applaud. This is political suicide, or politics is division by definition. Um, if, you, if you can't be in favor of polarization, then you've given up your only chance to intervene in the argument. Right. <laughs> well, that's I have a great friend talking about Lerner and Lieberman and the rest of it. Uh, a great friend in, in um, Israel called Israel Shahak. He's the head of the Israeli League for Human and Civil Rights. Actually, he's the ex-head of it. He was the, he was the inspired leader of it for a long time. I occasionally ring him up and ask how things are going, and when they're going well, he says, well, there are some encouraging signs of polarization. <laughs> because he's not a fool. He knows that if there isn't conflict and division and polarization, then the game is lost before it has begun. And that's what we're looking at with... And uh, that, you see, there's almost no language left in which you can express that thought in this country, and that's very worrying indeed. And as, as again, I have to keep saying, the liberals and many of much of the left is thoroughly complicit in this and has no one but itself to blame but of course prefers to blame the Christian coalition because then you can say oh, well we're threatened from the extreme right we better close our mouths and close our ranks and to steal a phrase from uh, Pratap Chatterjee who was just uh, recently on this show he said uh, what our choice now is just one and it's algae bore you know our other uh, uh, question from hell I had written down bore and bore and good bore, yeah. <laughs> right exactly um, the uh, other question I had uh, from uh, question from hell I had written down here for you was uh, are you just a closet Republican but I didn't know if I should ask that question or not no I'm not but I'm um, I'm an out I'm an out libertarian and always have been. I mean, I I'm find that all the way through, even the, the darkest days, save the Reagan era, quite often when I couldn't get published anywhere else, I could get published in um, Free Inquiry or Reason or some of the Republican magazines that were, well, well, they weren't Republican, they were libertarian magazines that would, they published Chomsky as well sometimes on things like imperialism and the uh, military-industrial complex. And I found myself more, having more and more in common with the libertarian movement as time has gone by. But no, I mean, I don't want to repudiate my sense that I, I owe what I know and, I, and also the way I think, to the extent that that's any use to anyone, to the, to the Marxist tradition. Why do you think that there hasn't been any success with the Libertarian Party here in the United States forming as the third party? We've well, I think the, the Libertarian Party is... The Libertarian Party is a different thing. Okay. Um, I don't know very much about it and probably shouldn't be tempted to comment, but I have a feeling that th there are sort of there are characters who sort of meet and say, well, what's the big debate? I think it's about stop signs and uh, road signs. And the, the, the libertarian purists argue that the state really has no right to go around putting up these signs telling drivers what to do, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, I, I, I love these arguments, <laughs> but I have a feeling that it's a bit of a sidetrack from the main from the main issue. Right. Um, I, just, uh, I just wish that libertarianism would become more, a more pervasive um, influence on politics in general. For example, one of the reasons I'm going to this shadow convention next week in, in L.A. is this, because it's, it's the only chance that there will be to raise the question of the drug war. Oh, definitely. And the, the war on drugs, which is the most clear and present danger to liberty, and I think even to democracy now in this country, and, and neighboring ones. Well, the people who've, been, who've raised doubts about it and, and brought up the arguments against it have very often been um, conservative, libertarian conservatives. Uh, 
William Buckley, for instance. Buckley, for example, and one or two others. And they've showed more guts on the issue than a lot of the liberal left has done. Oh, and there's the uh, uh, man who's running for Senate now in California, Tom Campbell. There's Mr. Campbell. And then, actually, on the capital punishment issue, which I think is a very important one, this year, the people who've made it a, an election issue, which it has been, amazingly, been a topic throughout the election, have generally been, again, libertarian conservatives who've developed doubts about the way that, at least the way in which the machinery of death is imposed. So, I don't mind common ground uh, there at all, and I certainly don't mind um, uh, guilt by association. Right. Um, I've never, I've never given a damn about that, and I've noticed there is a lot of liberal moral blackmail about that, and that's how they, that's how they rallied to their psychopathic, war criminal, rapist, corrupt President Clinton, <laughs> and they, they're welcome because if they would rather be seen in his company um, than the company of some libertarians, well, then that tells me all I need to know about them. Well, I really want to thank you for being on the show this morning, Christopher. I really appreciate uh, your time this morning. And uh, I don't know if you have seen this or not. You probably have. But the uh, uh, series that Daniel Forbes has been doing in Salon about the Office for uh, National Drug Con Control Policy, uh, General McCaffrey's uh, office, is just fantastic. And if you uh, have no, a chance... No, I must get hold of that. If, uh, if you have a chance, go to Salon.com and uh, print it out before when you jump on your plane and uh, read it on the way. It's been, it's been wonderful coverage. Great. All right. Well, take care. Well, uh, thanks Christopher. for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been real. Thank you. Take it easy. Bye-bye. But take it. Thank you. <laughs> you are here, and this is hell. Good morning, Vernon. Yeah, good morning. How are you doing today? Good. It's always good to hear your voice, Vernon. Uh, I want My greetings to all your listeners. Yeah, thank you very much for coming on the show today. You know what I didn't do the last time I interviewed you, and I don't want this to happen again. Vernon is from the American Indian Movement. You can check out their website at aimovement.org. Is I didn't go through your profile at all that's at the site, which is amazing. Uh, you're a principal spokesman for the American Indian Movement and a leader in actions ranging from the 1972 occupation of the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Washington to the 1992 Redskins Super Bowl demonstrations. What happened? What was it like at the uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs demonstration in uh, 1972 in Washington? What was that like? Uh, this was called a Trail of Broken Treaties uh, campaign. It was literally a march across the United States uh, by several thousand uh, Native people. It was billed as the last peaceful effort to bring about corrective change. And under the U.S. Constitution, of course, you have a right to petition your government for redress of grievances. And even though the U.S. Constitution is imposed on the various sovereign indigenous nations of this land, we felt we had to confront the Nixon administration and government uh, over our concerns, uh, which are, are still our concerns today, that is loss of land and resources, uh, uh, destruction of our environment, of course, the fact that uh, in almost every area our people fall behind and are almost the invisible people of this land. So it was brought about to bring about corrective change. Ironically, at the time that we needed to have honest leadership in Washington, we ended up uh, trying to negotiate with the Nixon 
uh, <laughs> administration during the very time they were trying to cover up the crimes of Watergate, which we all found out a little later. Yeah, nice timing, huh? <laughs> <laughs> How ironic. Yeah, and then the very next year you were involved uh, in Wounded Knee. Why don't you tell people who, uh, you know, a lot of these things unfortunately slip through the cracks of history now. Uh, you're not going to read about Wounded Knee in uh, a history test- textbook here in the United States and schools here in the United States. So why don't you tell people what your involvement was in Wounded Knee and what was going on there? Well, following the Trail of Broken Treaties, which arrived in Washington during election week in November of 1972, uh, there was a complete overreaction by the United States government. And within the Nixon White House, and if people, again, were to visit our website at aimovement.org and go to Ministry for Information and then go to the Council on Security and Intelligence, We have several hundred uh, declassified documents under the Freedom of Information Act, that is to say White House documents, CIA, FBI, which showed that the Nixon administration, rather than dealing with us in an honorable fashion, in fact started a very deep covert campaign to recruit Indians and non-Indians masquerading as Indians to infiltrate the American Indian movement, which wore continues against us today. So following the Trail of Broken Treaties, when many of our people went back to their different communities, uh, they were the targets of overzealous FBI agents, uh, a Bureau of Indian Affairs Police. Uh, our people were being harassed on the Pine Ridge, Oglala, Lakota uh, Nation in a place called the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. And eventually the elders there asked us to come in Uh, to support them, and of course, uh, that led to the historic hamlet of Wounded Knee, where in 1890, on Christmas Eve, over 300 men, women, and children, uh, under the leadership of a great spiritual leader, Chief Bigfoot, were cut down with Gatling gun and saber. And so it was then, of course, the place to go to, again, dramatize worldwide the continued mistreatment of our people, particularly those elders that were on the Trail of Broken Treaties. And, of course, um, both the uh, incident at the Bureau of Indian Affairs and then at Wounded Knee uh, uh, served a very important um, uh, process whereby people throughout the world finally understood that John Wayne and Hollywood movies had not killed all of us and that we were still here (laughs) and still struggling for our survival. So in that sense, it was a very important historic event to return there in 1973. And uh, we hate to say it, but it's true that if people would visit our website, uh, they would see that that war literally continues today. And that war, in fact... uh, claimed the lives of two of their own FBI agents at a place called the Jumping Bolt Community in 1975, uh, Agent Kohler and Williams, and a young Indian man by the name of Joe Stunts. And from that, Leonard Peltier, who literally was framed, uh, remains in prison after 23 years, even though he has the support of Bishop Desmond Tutu, Uh, Many members of the Parliament of Canada where he was kidnapped uh, by the United States government uh, with false affidavits by a young disturbed woman by the name of Myrtle Forbear. And of course, um, that campaign also led to the execution-style death of a young Mi'kmaq woman by the name of Anna Mae Aquash. 
so the war continues today. Uh, we find that some of these suspected agents are still operating on the periphery of the American Indian movement, and uh, some of them are academic, literally, literary and Indian frauds, so the war continues. You know, I don't mean to come off here as naive, but I guess I am. This just doesn't make any sense to me. I do not think that the Mi'kmaq people or the Ojibwe or any of the uh, tribes uh, that are here in the United States uh, should be a, a concern of national security for the United States. Why do, why do you think that these surveillance groups, these intelligence groups, have so much interest in you when, in fact, I mean, what what crimes have there? There hasn't been uh, uh, terrorist crimes by Native American groups. Uh, the bombing at the Murrah Building in Oklahoma City was done by a white man. Why do you think that they still have so much interest in surveilling you? Well, it's, you know, out of ignorance comes fear. You know, the American Indian is probably the most understood, misunderstood people in this land. And what we've seen in Washington in 1972 when we stood up and started talking about settler colonialism, neo-colonialism, and how many of our tribal governments were being used as an extension of the United States government through the Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, to exploit our lands and our resources, water rights, petroleum reserves. When the American Indian Movement stood up and started realistically talking about the cancer that had afflicted us, and that is colonialism, and started talking about you know, at that time, most of our tribal leaders, uh, Indian and non-Indian academics, intellectuals, had no concept of the word sovereignty and how that applies to true self-determination by a people who have been denied self-determination under the settler regime of the United States. And, of course, we could include Canada in that and the treatment of Native people in Canada. Uh, so it was a complete overreaction by the FBI. Uh, Clarence Kelly, in his autobiography, said that they at one time they had 1,200 agents assigned to the American Indian Movement. And, of course, it was out of that overreaction that he stated that the American Indian Movement almost caused the total breakdown of the FBI. So, basically, it was overreaction, the same kind of overreaction we've seen at Wounded Knee in 1890, the United States government launched it, launched this campaign, and out of that, they held uh, Senate Judiciary Committee hearings by Henry Fulbright, and, uh, who was the chair, and the document, which is on our website, is the American Indian Movement, Revolutionary Activities in the United States. And uh, what they did there was they were able to withdraw a lot of these vital documents, which we can't get today yet, and put it under a national security cover. So it was complete overreaction, and of course that remains a fact today. You know, it seems like, I mean, I've been stumbling across that so many times in this radio show. It's the uh, overreaction by the government in this in this drug war that's going on. It's the overreaction to what you were saying, the American Indian Movement. It's the overreaction to the in the communist scare during the 50s. It seems like our government is ready to overreact at the drop of a hat. Let me respond to that. I think this is a very important point. Uh, about six months ago, uh, President Clinton was visiting Guatemala, and he made a public statement there that it was wrong for the United States to have supported the various military regimes in Guatemala whose excesses led to the deaths of tens of thousands of civilians. And specifically, 150,000 Mayan Indians have been 
tortured, butchered, raped, murdered, buried, uh, burnt alive in Guatemala at the hands of Guatemalan security forces with the support of the Central Intelligence Agency and various administrations of the U.S. government. That going on at the very time that the United States is pointing the finger at Yugoslavia for its ethnic cleansing in Kosovo and Bosnia and other places of the world, while at the same time the United States is involved in this bloody war against the Indian populations of Guatemala. Uh, President Clinton said that it was a mistake, we should not have done it, and we should never do it again. Well, at this very moment, we're in the process of sending $1.3 billion to the military regime of Guatemala, I mean of Colombia, where in the past two weeks, six elementary school students that were gunned down by Colombian security forces. Uh, two years ago, the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, uh, their acronym FARC, were responsible for the murders of a young Hawaiian woman, a young uh, Anglo-American a man, and of course a young woman from the Menominee Nation by the name of Ingrid Washinawatok. And of course we are demanding at this very moment that the government of Colombia and the FARC be held accountable and responsible for the deaths of these three young people. And we're looking for a UN investigation uh, not only to bring to trial, to tribunal, the people that have been responsible for the brutal uh, massacres in Guatemala that has claimed over 400 and some uh, villages, uh, perhaps as many as 300,000 Guatemalan civilians, 150,000 Indians. And now the United States is doing the same thing in Colombia. So we're looking for an international body like the UN War Crimes Tribunal to investigate the deaths of these three young people in Colombia and the deaths of the tens of thousands of civilians in Guatemala. You know, it's ironic that the United States would be pointing the fingers at other people of the world for its ethnic cleansing program, while at the same time, and for those that always say, well, it's history, we're not responsible for our history. Well, perhaps they're not, but we have to point out today to your listeners is that that war that ethnic cleansing continues against the U.A. Indian in Colombia, which will be intensified now to protect Occidental Petroleum Company's petroleum interest in U.A. Indian lands. And, of course, the $1.3 billion will further cause suffering of all the people of Colombia. And eventually, again, it will show that the United States has chosen to be on the wrong side of history. And as they supported the brutal regime of Pinochet in Chile, uh, that they are now making the same mistakes in Colombia. What is it about the United States foreign policy that they always choose to be on the side of these brutal military regimes? And always having a silly uh, an excuse for it that uh, seems to be just packaged for the media, like the drug war or the fight against communists. We are talking to Vernon Belcourt of the American Indian Movement, and uh, you can check out their website at aimovement.org. The thing that really disturbs me the most about what's happening in Colombia, too, the really sad part of it, uh, about it, Vernon, uh, is that there, is, there was a very, very small silver lining to the aid package, which was that Colombia would have to 
uh, live up to a certain amount of human rights guidelines that the United States had for them. And now, just in the last week, President Clinton waived all of those human rights guidelines. Exactly. And, of course, you know, when we look at the drug war, as you indicated before, uh, it was at one time under the guise of fighting communism, such as the case in Guatemala in particular. And now it's under the guise of fighting the drug war, but in reality, the United States is fighting the revolutionary armed forces of Colombia, uh, a.k.a. FARC, uh, who, while we hold them accountable for the murders of uh, Ingrid Washington-Watok and the two other young people, uh, we also must hold the government of Colombia uh, accountable also for those deaths. And therefore, what we're doing is we're calling on all of our friends uh, throughout the United States and worldwide to withhold any support uh, to the government of Colombia and demand that the United States Congress and the Clinton administration cancel the $1.3 million military aid project, uh, which will only intensify the suffering of the, uh, the people throughout Colombia, including the Indian people. We're also calling on all of our friends here and worldwide to withhold any solidarity to the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Guatemala until such time as they agree to meet with the family members, offer an apology, accept responsibility, and to pay reparations uh, for their deaths. And, of course, we're hoping that your viewers out there, or your listeners out there, particularly those who consider themselves people of goodwill and people who stand for peace, uh, to support us, in that effort. Uh, also, it says in your biography here that you were jailed for uh, throwing your very own blood on the Guatemalan embassy to protest the killing of 100,000 Indians. Was that the last time you were arrested? Well, I've been arrested since then. However, uh, yes, that was uh, uh, probably in the early, in the mid-80s or the, uh, about 1982, 83. At that time, uh, we knew that uh, working with Rigoberta Menchu, the youngest Nobel Peace Prize winner, a young Mayan Indian, that at that time, the U.S. support for the brutal government of Guatemala and the evangelical uh, uh, Christian nut by the name of Ephraim Rios Mont, uh, who we are holding accountable along with uh, Lucas Garcia Romero, just to give uh, uh, the names of two of these uh, killers who were presidents of Guatemala. Uh, I had to resort to throwing my own blood on the Guatemalan embassy and, of course, was arrested, and, of course, at that time, the Guatemalan embassy uh, took a position of sovereign immunity, refusing to prosecute, uh, thus uh, preventing myself and our movement from having a forum where we could focus on... Uh, I was breaking the law to try to stop the uh, brutal massacres of people in Guatemala, but as you're well aware, uh, uh, two years ago, we had to resort to throwing blood uh, or to burning, uh, rather, an effigy of Chief Wahoo in Cleveland in order to bring about the fact that Chief Wahoo, this red, grinning, buck-tooth logo, a caricature of an Indian, to us it's our little red sambo, as black sambo would be to African Americans, and was arrested for burning this effigy. Uh, we argued our own case, and, were, and the case was thrown out by a judge. We went back uh, again on... Uh, Good Friday of 1988, and we burnt another one. And, of course, now we're going to be going to trial. We have a lawsuit against the city of Cleveland for denying us our First Amendment rights, Fourth Amendment rights, that is to say freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and to be free of false arrest and false imprisonment. 
Well, in the past two weeks, uh, the African-American mayor of Cleveland has announced that, the, in fact, the Wahoo, the caricature, is racist, and he's ordering it removed from all public facilities in Cleveland. So, it, unfortunately, it takes that kind of action to bring about the kind of change that we're seeking. You know, that uh, logo has... Uh, there's two things that have always bugged me in sports. Like, for instance, uh, Marquette, Marquette University was the Warriors. And the term, the, you know, like uh, in, with the uh, Atlanta Braves, uh, the name Warriors or Braves does not offend me to the degree that the Indians logo does, that the Washington Redskins... I mean, how can you get away with calling a team the Washington Redskins? Well, you know, the, uh, we took that case before the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. I think the suit was filed on behalf of seven prominent Native American uh, plaintiffs. I went before the U.S. Patent and Trademark three-judge uh, federal panel who agreed with us that the term Redskin and all six of their other trademark protections uh, were racist, pejorative, demeaning, degrading, and scandalous, and lifted their trademark protections. Now, you would think that the owners of the Washington football team uh, would understand that and, and have a name the team contest and come out with another team name. Uh, we would hope that the owners of the Cleveland baseball team uh, since even the mayor has now agreed with us that it's a racist caricature, uh, would change. Now, of course, people were always saying, well, let's get rid of the mascot, but can we keep the names? Well, as long as there's a Kansas City Chiefs, a Chicago Blackhawks, a Washington Redskins, an Atlanta Braves, or the Cleveland Indians, or the University of Illinois fighting Illini. You understand it always has to be the fighting Illini. Right. The people of Illinois were the victims of the most brutal ethnic cleansing programs, and now to come back and say they're honoring us by naming a football team and having this uh, idiot come out on the field called Chief Illiniwick and distort our beautiful music of Indian people, distort our dance, uh, it's an insult. They're not honoring us. So obviously our campaign is to rid all athletic programs, teams of Indian names. We have to get rid of the Indian names in order to get rid of, of the kind of behavior we see coming out of the fans themselves. You know, our first broadcast that we did this year, the year 2000 in January, I said, uh, just kind of offhand, because I'd been thinking about it for a while, that I thought that this would be the century of the indigenous people, that we would see uh, people finally realizing the horrible persecution. Not only the land, but we have to control and benefit by the resources from the land. And, of course, we're seriously calling on our various indigenous nations, uh, if necessary, in our demands for restitutions, reparations, restoration of lands for a reconstruction of an Indian future in America, to seriously take a look, take a look at uh, the various leases they have with the various coal companies and petroleum companies. And I think they would find that we're still being looted of these resources because we really don't have a watchdog type of organization like OPEC. We have what's called the Council of Energy Resource Tribes, but I don't believe that they're 
exercising the power they have over our resources, and I think that's something that our tribal leaders have to take a serious look at. What it, what amazes me is that uh, you know you always hear these arguments uh, about morality concerning gambling, and on uh, Native American reservations there are casinos here in the United States now, and yet we w- are not willing to do something that's uh, you know moral, which would be to protect your mineral rights and to make sure that the money that you are supposed to receive for your land is given to you. I mean, it, does, it doesn't seem consistent with the family values that I keep hearing our presidential candidates talking about. Well, you know, family values seem to end when it comes to uh, indigenous people. Uh, the fact is um, that if we were to find large oil reserves within our communities, uh, the oil companies and the U.S. government would find some way to exploit it, such as they're doing up in the North Slope, up in Alaska, right. uh, whereby uh, Indian people are not benefiting by their resources to the degree that they should. Uh, in terms of gaming, of course, uh, we uh, brought the word sovereignty to our tribal leadership and got them to understand what that meant in terms of true self-determination and that we're not subject uh, to the state uh, jurisdiction which enabled many of our tribes to put in large destination resort casino operations. Uh, We have said time and time again we're not going to argue with that. Uh, We feel it's not the best exercise of sovereignty, but it's the form of economic development that will do until something else comes along, and we would hope that our tribes would start becoming more diversified in their investments uh, and uh, in development of our own lands and resources so that we continue to have a, a uh, fusion of, uh, of capital that is much needed. Um, you know, there's a lot of elements out there that are anti-gaming. Uh, they will support uh, the casino industry in Las Vegas, uh, but at the same time, such as in the case of uh, even Illinois, for that matter, where uh, the politicians are lining up against Indian tribes to go back to their traditional lands whereby they can take land and put it in trust and put in a casino operation. Uh, they would have rather have the Atlantic City and the Las Vegas group do this than to see that Indian people have some money in our pocket. You know, there's something about economic self-sufficiency which strengthens political independence, and I believe that the politicians realize that, and they'd rather keep us broke and on welfare and faced with all the other social ills than to work with tribes to break the cycles of poverty. You know, uh, one of the uh, uh, stereotypes that I always had, and it was reinforced when uh, Canada gave the uh, uh, autonomous region of uh, Nunavut to the indigenous people of the Northwest Territories, formerly Northwest Territories, along the western coast of Hudson Bay. I always thought that the Canadians were far more open-minded in their uh, relationship with the native and indigenous people. And yet we've seen over the last few months over the last couple of years that this just is not the case time and time again. Uh, there's uh, persecution going on. The first thing I heard about was logging in Quebec, and now just this uh, last week or two, um, now like close to three weeks, with what's happening with the Micmac in uh, Burnt Church, New Brunswick. So for people who don't know this story, because a lot of people don't, because you won't see it on uh, American broadcast mainstream media, why don't you tell people what's going on in New Brunswick with lobstering? Well, first of all, Canada has uh, successfully been able to whitewash and candy coat their history 
but their treatment of indigenous people in Canada has been as brutal, if not more brutal, than that uh, which we experience right here in the United States. Uh, Canada, in history, has has their massacres against indigenous peoples. Uh, the killing of Louis Riel, the great Métis leader who allied himself with the Cree nations of uh, Western Canada, uh, he, along with 11 Cree chiefs, were hung in, in 1885. Uh, you can see that uh, Canada has been very brutal with its indigenous people. You know, there's something about Canadians and Americans in general. They like to pass themselves off as peaceful, Christian, uh, God-fearing, loving, compassionate people. And that's as long as they have their way. But the minute that our tribal leaders uh, challenge them and their fierce terror, of course, we become the savages, the hostiles, the renegades, you know, the rhetoric of genocide uh, so that they can kill us. But we have to ask the question, who are the real terrorists? Who are the real savages? And uh, the Can Canadian government has treated the indigenous people in a very savage manner down through the years. And while... Uh, you know, they have granted a certain amount of autonomy and independence over the Northwest Territories. Uh, I would suggest that the leaders up there read the small print when it comes to timber, water, and petroleum and mineral reserves. But uh, to give you an example of that hypocrisy, I was in Amsterdam here just a few days ago and waiting in the business class lounge at uh, KLM Airlines at Schiphol Airport uh, sitting with a group of Americans, uh, business people, uh, we were watching uh, BBC and CNN uh, International News, and uh, we seen these pictures come on of uh, Canadian Department of Natural Resource law enforcement agencies literally uh, ramming into the boats of the indigenous lobster fishermen who have been doing this since time immemorial. It's part of their spiritual cultural tradition. Certainly, it uh, benefits them economically uh, through the subsistence fishing. And of course, you know, we didn't decimate all the lobster, we didn't kill all the eagles or the buffalo or the wolves. You know, American and Canadian immigrants came into our natural habitat and then turned around and killed all of us, as they have done to the other living creatures. Uh, we didn't decimate the fishing stocks, and we won't decimate the fishing stocks. But at the time that the U.S. Supreme Court has uphold, upheld the traditional fishing uh, rights of indigenous people here under the 1837 treaty, I'm talking about the Ojibwe, Chippewa people of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota in particular, we see the Canadian government, even though there are court rulings upholding the rights of indigenous people, literally ramming their boats and causing a tremendous amount of suffering. We have been in touch with the fishing leaders and the tribal leaders up in the Maritimes of Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. And what they have told us is that uh, the law enforcement agencies literally are beating the hell out of them. And I think it's a shame that the Canadian authorities would be acting in this fashion. You would think that it was Nazi Germany or something in the treatment of the Jews, but they're finally showing their true colors, obviously, and on the basis of that, the American Indian Movement intends not to stand by and allow this to continue. We're calling on all of our friends worldwide to take action against all Canadian consulates, embassies, business interests, and we're asking our people in this country and Canada to march on all international border crossings and do whatever they have to do to block these crossings 
until the Canadian government starts acting civilized like they claim to be. You know, uh, the thing that it really that confuses me, confuses the hell out of me about this whole uh, lobstering situation in New Brunswick, is if these, uh, if the Micmac, if the uh, tribe that's there uh, has the right through uh, historical fishing rights to fish in the way that they have fished for forever, to use the lobster traps that they have used forever, um, then why would the uh, government be coming down so hard on them rather than, uh, I mean, they see, from every article I've read, from very uh, even conservative newspapers in Canada, it seems like the Micmac are willing to negotiate, but it doesn't seem like the Canadian government is willing to negotiate. It comes right down to greed, greed of the Canadian government and the sports fishermen and the other non-Indian commercial fishermen. It comes down to greed, and they're wanting to continue exploiting the resources uh, to the detriment of the Micmac and the other fishermen along the coast. Uh, so we would hope that the Canadian government would start behaving themselves and not act like the thugs under apartheid South Africa that, uh, that caused the suffering of the people of Azani or South Africa all these years. You know, it's amazing that just north of the border here we see them acting in such an uncivilized uh, fashion. Yeah, it's, it's a real shame. We're speaking with Vernon Belcourt. Vernon is from the American Indian Movement, AIMovement.org. Please check out their website. Vernon, it's the last question I have for you. You know it's the question from hell. Are you ready, Vernon? Surely. All right, so here is my question from hell. Uh, as you have noticed, this story is being completely ignored in the mainstream broadcast media here in the United States. As you have noticed in the past, when there were disputes over uh, fishing rights in northern Minnesota and Wisconsin and Michigan uh, with your own tribe, with the Ojibwe and with the Chippewa, that, um, uh, that was very much ignored in the press as well. While this... this uh, imposed uh, censorship, I don't know what you'd call it, uh, continues. Um, do you think that the discrimination against Native Americans is so far beyond any other discrimination that may be happening in uh, this country to any other minority that it's almost impossible for people to comprehend how bad it is? Absolutely. Uh, as I said, the uh, Indian people uh, are the evidence of the American Holocaust. When I say American Holocaust, I'm talking about what's going on in Guatemala, what's going on and continuing in Colombia, what's going on along the east coast of what is called Canada. Uh, and they want to they hide the evidence because we're the evidence of this Holocaust and they want to try to ignore us uh, because we still uh, control to an extent a tremendous amount of the petroleum and coal and other mineral reserves in this country out of sight, out of mind. They figure if they ignore us, that we'll go away. I want to give you an example. I was just watching one of the major networks this morning, and they had the African-American woman who's the vice presidential candidate to Pat Buchanan, who uh, has, I think, uh, uh, in the polls, uh, doing about uh, one and a half to two percent. Yet Ralph Nader has a young Indian woman from the Ojibwa Nation of northern Minnesota by the name of Winona LaDuke, Nader and Leduc are carrying about five, six, in some states, seven percent, 
Uh, but we don't see any of these programs having Winona LaDuke on because she would be talking about the various things that I'm talking about, about freedom for Leonard Peltier, who's a victim of the American government excesses starting at Wounded Knee in 1973 in particular. She'd be talking about the resources, uh, how our lands are still being exploited. America, I think, are being shortchanged because I'm convinced there's a lot of people out there. There's a tremendous reservoir of goodwill among the American people and other people worldwide. But they're never going to know how they can help if the mainstream media continues to totally ignore us as they're doing right now. Uh, it's ironic that we have to burn an effigy of Wahoo in Cleveland. We have to throw blood on the Guatemalan embassy to get Americans to understand that one day they will be held accountable uh, for what has happened in Guatemala. If out of ignorance they uh, don't know, but once they know if they choose not to do anything about it. So, uh, you know, it's ironic that we have to resort to these kinds of struggles in order to get attention from the media. Uh, when our people are going through the courts, uh, using the system uh, that's imposed on us, and we're having some success with that, that's not newsworthy. They want to look around and see us burning out some settlers, fortifying the ignorant stereotypes, uh, that America thinks about us and that keeps them locked into ignorance and out of that ignorance comes uh, total misunderstanding, total fear, and overreaction by law enforcement. You know what, Vernon, uh, just one last thing. Uh, I actually had this, uh, somebody sent me an email. They said, I know you're going to do a question for hell for uh, question from hell for uh, Vernon uh, Belcourt, so ask him this. And I think that I know what your question, your answer is going to be, but uh, the person says that uh, uh, conquering other people, conquering other lands seems to be the natural progression of what, not natural progression, but the uh, continued progression of human history. Uh, ask him if the land that he lives on now is his ancestors' land or if his ancestors conquered it from another people. You know, a lot of times our detractors, when we're demonstrating outside of the Cleveland Stadium or the University of Illinois, uh, our detractors will come by and out of ignorance, they'll say, why don't you go back where you came from if you don't like it here? They say that to us. <laughs> is that ironic? And we said, well, tonight, you know, we'll put up our wigwam in your backyard because that's where we came from. Uh, <laughs> our people were pushed out of the eastern seaboards, the northeast into the Great Lakes area, and, of course, eventually pushed into... Uh, Rocky Boy, Montana, where there are Ojibwe, Chippewa people. Many of our people went on up into uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan and Canada. Uh, many of our people were forced to settle along a line that had been inhabited for uh, since time immemorial by both the Dakota, uh, which are the Sioux Nation, uh, the Ho-Chunk or Winnebago, and the Ojibwa or Chippewa, which, in fact, when we were pushed into the uh, various lands of the Dakota, uh, that started the, uh, the, the, the uh, friction uh, between various tribes. But when we occupied our own lands and lived on our own lands, we lived basically in peace with one another. Uh, the areas where I live at the White Earth or Ojibwe Nation in northern Minnesota were both used and inhabited by the Dakota and my people, the Ojibwa. And, of course, if we were to go back to our ancestral lands, uh, we would have to dispossess a lot of non-Indian settlers in and around Chicago, for instance, and on over into the Great Lakes region. 
Uh, so uh, we would just be all be moving around again in one huge shuffle. And one other thing, I keep thinking of questions right before I'm going to let you go, is um, the Native American, uh, and I'm going to be using really general terms here because I know that there were plenty of different tribes and probably plenty of different traditions, but m it is my understanding, my, uh, I don't know, short-sighted, near-sighted, I don't know what it is, uh, uh, white man's perspective of the uh, uh, Native Americans is that uh, all of your history had been passed down traditionally in, a, in an oral tradition and uh, has a lot of that history been lost or even intentionally lost so uh, it would be kept more sacred? I mean, it, 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 has a lot of your history been lost due to the oral tradition? Of course. You know, the whole system was to destroy us spiritually, culturally, socially, economically, politically. And uh, we are the victims of America's most horrendous brainwashing or behavior modification programs. You know, the American government uh, uh, coined the phrase brainwashing when uh, American service people, servicemen in particular, ended up in uh, North Korean or Vietnamese uh, prison camps. They said that they were brainwashed. Uh, the United States had a policy to destroy us spiritually culturally, to destroy our language, to destroy our traditions in the U.S. boarding schools, which were operated in a very brutal fashion by many of the various Christian denominations, including the satanic priests and, and, uh, and nuns, satanic nuns, uh, within various Catholic boarding schools here and in Canada. So there was a whole policy to destroy us in that fashion. The American Indian Movement, which uh, came about in 1968 here in Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, was actually a rebirth of spiritual, cultural, social, economic, and political realities. We sparked the spiritual and cultural renaissance, whereby things have turned around completely. And in many of our schools now, our young people are having to learn their language, uh, where their parents and grandparents were stripped of it, uh, and we're very hopeful and optimistic for the future because of the fact that we have turned things around somewhat. But uh, you're right. A lot of the oral tradition, oral history, uh, a lot of our uh, spiritual way of life has been lost. But I can tell you it was kept intact in a lot of our traditional people who are now our teachers, our mentors, and our instructors. Uh, so I believe all in all, with all the problems we're faced, we have a very promising future. Well, I wish the best of luck to you, Vernon. I wish the best of luck to the American Indian Movement, and I hope that uh, finally people will uh, be as sensitive to what has happened to the Native American as they are to many of the other minorities here in the United States. Vernon, I appreciate you being on the show. It's always an honor to have you on. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank I hope to be on again. All right. Thanks a lot, Vernon. Have a great day. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Went by my uh, old house last summer, and it's like a block and a half of empty lots, and then there's my house, and then there's yeah, a block right. and a half of empty lots. Hey, so listen. Detroit's not the city that works. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> in Chicago. Yeah, right out. In Chicago, just barely works. So listen, John, uh, this is what I did. I didn't know exactly. I mean, I know a lot about you because I'm from Michigan, because right. my, my brother was involved with uh, Mount Rush newspaper in Mount oh, Pleasant. Yeah. Uh, he was uh, Mount Pleasant. Right. He was one Central of the... Central Michigan University. 
Right, exactly. And uh, as a matter of fact, he ended up being, uh, they thought that he was trying to kill Gerald Ford at one point because of some oh. ridiculous thing that was in the paper and stuff. So anyway, so I just, what I did was I emailed everybody who listens to the show and I said, if John Sinclair com- comes on, what would you want me to ask him? So the, the, the most important question I got from people was, how did you end up in jail? And is it true that for two joints, you were sentenced to 10 years in jail? Yes, actually nine and a half to ten years. And so how much time did you actually do? Two and a half. And so... Uh, uh, the people got me out. <laughs> because of so much... my appeal, uh, I challenged the constitutionality of the Michigan marijuana laws. And I was successful eventually. But they wouldn't give me a P- an appeal bond. They considered me a threat to the society actually defined in that way by the Michigan Court of Appeals. So they held me without appeal bond until I won my case. Well, you're on the right show. We've had plenty of threats to society on our show. Yeah, good, good. Hey, so uh, is it true that an undercover cop sold you these two joints? No, 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 no. I gave them to an undercover policewoman. Oh, is that what happened? Yeah. So she so she just approached you, said you got any joints on you, and you just gave them to her. You weren't selling them to her. No. And so this was in 1966. Remember, long, long time ago. Was this in Ann Arbor? No, Detroit. Oh, okay. I heard it was. I lived in Detroit uh, from 1964 to 68, then in Ann Arbor until 75, then back in Detroit until 91 when I moved to New Orleans. Um, another question. Where I live now. Another question that somebody sent me was, I want to get my notes on this. Uh, in 70... Yeah, people sent in questions, huh? Yeah, I had a whole bunch sent in. Far out. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> this, uh, uh, one woman said that she went to the 19... I want to get this right. 1973... Or no, 1974 Blues and Jazz Fest had to be held in exile in Windsor. Windsor, yeah. And that uh, the Canadians wouldn't let you in because you had a felony arrest. Did you? Were you able to ever get to that 74 Blues and Jazz Fest? No. No, I have the tape, so... That's the closest I'm ever going to get. <laughs> well, that's not so bad. No. You had a lot of... Better than a blank. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you had, you had a lot of great bands of those, like uh, Little Junior and uh, One String Sam and yeah, yeah. Boogie Woogie Red. Those are really fantastic. And yeah. so, yeah, so she was just curious. She was like, I wonder if he ever even made it there, because the word through the crowd was that he's not going to make it. He's not going to make it. Yeah, they wouldn't let me in. So, oh. uh, go ahead. No, I was... <laughs> That was it. They wouldn't let me in. <laughs> Did you? The story ended there. <laughs> <laughs> Did you form the group, the White Panthers? Did I what now? Did you form the group, yeah, 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 the White yeah, Panthers? Yeah. You I did. Was, yeah, I was the minister of information and then the chairman. And is that group still going strong today? I don't think so. You know that I just found out <laughs> that over the last few weeks uh, there have been new chapters of the SDS throughout the Midwest. That's oh, about time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I'm praying for the return of the Black Panther Party. That would be a wonderful occasion in today's awful world. Uh, for so, me, anyway. So uh, was it different being a part of a band, you know, part of MC5? What was it like coming out of Detroit? Did you get any flack from people at the time, or was coming out of ah, Detroit a ah. good thing? coming out of any other uh, city considered provincial by the powers on the coast. It was like coming out of Chicago or Cleveland or St. Louis or Kansas City, you know. 
Right. Nowhere. <laughs> right. All right, John. Well, listen, I'm going to have another uh, interview lined up, and I'd like to talk to you for a really long time, but we have one last question for you, and it's the question from hell. It's the question we hate to ask. You'll hate to answer. I don't know. You'll have to tell me. This is what a guy sent in. Uh, Did you read the book, Please Kill Me? It's It's an oral history of the punk rock scene in the late 70s, and he says that the book depicts the MC5 in an unfavorable light mainly their treatment of the women who hung out with the band it was oh, sort of yeah. like it was sort of like a strange commune, commune where the women were supposed to know their place and cook and clean for the band was that the deal with the band no so that was a complete misinformation that was printed in that book i wouldn't say it was complete they were as bad as every other male at that time uh, and you know to some extent enlightened by the Upsurgence of the women's liberation movement. So but no, women always could do whatever they wanted to in our in our group. So was there a, like a communal lifestyle that was surrounding MC Five? Oh yeah, absolutely. And one last question. Thirty-five people. Oh really? Yeah. Wow. And one a huge commune. One last question for you that one of our correspondents sent in was, "What is the family dog?" Oh, the Family Dog was an organization in San Francisco in which several Detroiters figured prominently. They were the ones who started the dance concerts at the Avalon Ballroom. Oh, really? And Stanley Mouse did their posters. He was a Detroiter. Alan Stone, who was a disc FX at the time, was a Detroiter and a member of the Family Dog. So Family Dog was just this dance party movement that was going out on in San Francisco that was kind of... I was headed by a guy named Chet Helms out of Texas who came up there with Janice Job. Oh, crazy. He presented the Big Brother and the Holding Company, the Grateful Dead, Quicksilver Messenger Service, Jefferson Airplane, all those. They provided the first public venues for them to play in a ballroom style with dancing and light shows. Oh, cool. People stoned out of their mind. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, what town are you living in now, John? New Orleans. Oh, are you? And you still doing your uh, jazz and blues show down there? Yeah, I'm on WWOZ 90.7 FM, your jazz and heritage station. (laughs) 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 If I were there today, I'd be on the air tonight playing the blues all night long on Saturday. Oh, excellent. And, you know, uh, are you guys ever going to get your station up on the Internet so people can listen We're to you? We're on the web 24 hours a day. Are you? WWOZ.org. WWOZ.org? That's us. All right, John, I'll keep plugging it on the show. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, thanks. Nice l- talking to you, yeah. man. Yeah, hey, take Give care, man. brother my regards. All right, thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell... And to support the show, visit thisishell.com.